selves echoing in mine, can you? No, I can't. Uh-uh. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. I think to what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. And he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Hey, welcome to Making the Hedge. My name is Josh Gibbs. I'll be your host for the evening. Uh, this is, uh, it's been a couple weeks since we've been together and uh, done our last debate, which the last debate was actually uh, right before Christmas. It was with uh, Pastor Terry Basham out of Oklahoma, and uh, we did a debate over the topic of limited atonement. Uh, as you can see, we've got kind of a tag team uh, structure for tonight's debate. Uh, we've got the two Calvinists represented by Dave. Uh, he's up in the top right corner. Dave, if you'll right, w- wave your hand and let everybody know who you are. Uh, he is on Twitter. His, uh, his handle is going to be at Presby Polemics. And uh, so if you want to look him up, he's got a lot of good stuff, man, and he dialogues with folks. Um, he's, he's a real good guy to engage online if you're into that kind of thing. And uh, he definitely sharpens me, even though obviously we don't agree uh, on that side of the soteriolo- soteriology argument. Then we've got Chris Williams. Many of you guys know Chris Williams all, uh, from his own YouTube channel. Um, and I follow you, Chris. I look forward to uh, the videos that you do. I think that it's profitable. It's good stuff that I can learn from myself. So uh, welcome, Chris, to the show as well. And uh, then we've got James Gray. He's down in the bottom right corner. He's going to be representing, if you want to call it the traditional perspective, he and I are kind of going to be representing that side of, of uh, the argument, which you could also call the non-Calvinist perspective. Uh, James, I believe you were telling me earlier that you would kind of lean more towards Arminian. Is that right? Yeah, I wouldn't call myself like a traditional Southern Baptist at all. I mean, I, um, I go to a uh, sort of like, Sons of God background, um, you know, Foursquare type church where it's more non-denominational. Um, so that's sort of my background. And then also just, you know, I tend to align more with classical Arminianism versus traditionalism. But I do appreciate a lot of what traditionalism has uh, brought to the discussion. So just like uh, on the Calvinist side, you've got a, you can have a lot of different, um, there's, there's different levels of Calvinism. You can have five point, four point, you can have supra, infra. Uh, and, and there's there's just a lot of different levels to it. I don't know if Dave and Chris would agree on all the different aspects of what what uh, you know would entail in that systematic. 
and and I don't think James and I would agree on everything either. So we've got we've got a lot of different perspectives. I think every one of us that's in this room right now or on this channel, um, I would consider us all brothers in Christ. We love the Lord, and at the end of the day, um, we're trying to get down to. Uh, what? How is God mo most accurately represented through the Scripture? So I think we're all trying to come to that conclusion. What does Scripture say about the character of God? And uh, when it comes to the topic tonight, uh, it's going to be uh, structured in a format of a question, which is simply worded this way. It says, "Does God decree sin?" All right. So you've got you've got the Calvinist perspective that is going to take the affirmative. So Chris and Dave are going to get us kicked off first. And uh, they are going to take the position that God does decree sin. And uh, then James and I are going to rebut that. I'm going to put the structure of the debate up here so you can see it. Um, it I, we wanted to keep it as close to 10 minutes as possible in the opening statements uh, for each person. So it should be about 40 minutes. Okay, so the Calvinists, uh, Dave and, and Chris, are going to get us kicked off there. Then we'll go into 10 minutes of rebuttal from each side. So that'll be five minutes for each person. Um, I'll kick us off in the rebuttal. Uh, for me and James, and then James will follow up there. After that, we're going to go into open discussion and dialogue. Uh, we'll do about five minutes for questions from each side. That way there's some organization to it. Then we'll open up uh, open up the questions to you as the audience and uh, wrap it up from there. So it should be hopefully somewhere around an hour and a half. I'll probably go a little bit longer than that. Hang in there if you can. Uh, if you would, those of you guys who are viewing live right now, if you would like and share the video or subscribe, I would greatly appreciate that. We can get some more viewers online, get some more questions at the end. Uh, but also at the end of the day, uh, get some more people to view uh, this debate, which is answering uh, really a really important question. You're going to get some different perspectives here, and I think it'll be profitable for everybody. Uh, but with that said, guys, I've done a lot of talking. I want to turn it over to you. Uh, Dave and Chris first, since you'll be representing the Calvinist perspective, and uh, just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up um, to come into this discussion to uh, answer that question, does God decrease sin? So Dave, if you want to kind of go first there, that'd be great. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, as probably several people that will watch this know, uh, we've done this before. Uh, you and I have interacted pretty much at length on uh, Twitter over the last year, year and a half or so, and then you invited me to come do the debate on total depravity, which I thought was good and solid and edifying. Um, I thought both of us really enjoyed that, and uh, I've obviously known Chris for a while. I think he was one of the uh, initial people that I really started interacting with when I got active uh, on Twitter a year and a half or so ago. And James, I actually just met uh, a few days ago, I think the same time that you guys did, but yeah. seems like a good guy, seems like he knows his stuff. Looking forward to getting into it, man. Cool. Chris, how about you, man? And um, ultimately, I would say I was convinced by the, um, um, you know, does God decree sin by scripture? Um, you know, just seeing explicitly in the in the scripture, we're going to bring those things out during our, our debate, but... Um, but yeah, man, I'm I'm a Calvinist because of my convictions in Scripture, not because I want to be cool or popular. Um, I'm not you in are cool and popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's it is unpopular, but you you got to you know what I'm I'm saying. Some people come to Calvinism because they find it popular in their little circle. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'm convinced by Scripture, and uh, I definitely look forward to uh, the debate and the dialogue. Mm. I, I know. Um, I know you've always been kind when you had me on here, so I appreciate that. Well, I've got to clarify something. I, I, I hope that you didn't take it that I said Calvinism is unpopular. I was saying that you are cool and popular. So, 
But um, yeah, you know, I, I don't pretend to know everything about Calvinism. I'm not a Calvinist. So um, I, I learn a lot about what Calvinists believe by talking to Calvinists. And uh, so I expect to learn some stuff here tonight. So uh, James, how about you, man? Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here and why you want to answer this question tonight. Yes, I mean, like, I'm a long-time lurker in this discussion, um, <clears throat> you know, mainly just kind of, like, lurking on Twitter and stuff and, and following, like, greats like <clears throat> Dr. Michael Brown, Dr. James White, you know, just really trying to get into discussion more. Um, I've sort of been in this discussion probably for, like, years and years already, but, um, I mean, I'm only, like, 30 years old, but, I mean, it's like, I'm, I'm 29, but I'm, I'm going to be 30 soon, and, um, you know, I just feel like, you know, I've always wanted to sort of uh, interact more in this discussion, and I think this forum would be a good way to do that. I, like, I've interacted on uh, Dr. Flowers' uh, you know, like sort of Google Hangouts and stuff like that. So cool. um, I'm just really interested, you know, and um, and I think I think 80% of the problems usually in this discussion is like trying to accurately portray what the other person, the other side believes. Because I think we, we, we're constantly getting tripped up in, in you know, accurately representing our yep. opponents. And I think if we can just get past that, I think that'll be good. Cool. I totally agree, and uh, I don't have any problem with that, man. If if I if I misrepresent what you believe, and I'm sure that I'll say some things that you'll say, hey, well, that's not what I believe. That doesn't represent what I believe. Um, just speak up. Let me know uh, when we get to the discussion and dialogue. Uh, but with that said, guys, we're about 10 minutes in, and uh, why don't we go ahead and get it kicked off? We've got uh, you guys are going to get us kicked off with the affirmative, so I'll just turn it over to you. I think, Chris, you're going to go first. Is that right? You're on mute. That is correct. That's uh, Let me right. put this timer up here. Um, yeah, I'm going to have my timer down so I can kind of follow along mentally. and got to have that timer by you. Today the 21st? Today is the 22nd. Oh, dude. You're 24 hours behind. Dang, man, that's messed up. <laughs> You were a day early to your own debate. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, all right, see you tomorrow. That's funny. Hey, by the way, Chris said that Calvinists are never late for anything, so that's on the record. <laughs> that, was a, that was a joke to James. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man, you're up. You've got about ten and a half minutes, so. All right. Whenever you're ready. All righty. So thanks again for everybody joining us. Um, the just to remind everybody of the topic of the debate, the, do the topic is, does God decree sin? Does he ordain sin? So I like to define what we mean when we say a decree in this topic. By decree, we mean from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever come to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, so this is, by, by the way, this is the Westminster Confession in chapter 3. He's saying, God is not the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is liberty of the contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. I'm going to flesh that out a little bit more and, um, in, in, in my opening. But Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Edwards expresses something similar. He says, if by the author of sin be meant the sinner, the agent, or the actor of sin or the doer of the wicked thing, it would be a reproach and blasphemy to su suppose God to be the author of sin. In this sense, I utterly deny God to be the author of sin. So if we're saying in this debate, because I know that's going to come up at some point that, well, if you're saying God decrees all things, then he is the author of sin. No, he's not, because there's no evil desire in him. 
And so I definitely want to flesh that out. Um, but let me just let me establish what we mean when we say, because this is going to come out as well. I just, I, I'm just addressing some of the things I know that are going to come up and we have to establish the foundation before I even get to the text. Um, so I want to distinguish what we mean by God's sovereign will or decree and his revealed will or decree. When we say his sovereign decree, his sovereign will, his, his decreative will, secret will, some may know it as, we're saying that all things that come to pass, as the confession said, has been because of God's secret decree. But when we speak of the revealed will or revealed law, we're speaking of that which he has given, i.e. the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. He has revealed what man has, has to do. Don't murder don't kill, worship God, et cetera, et cetera. And if, if, if people think that the, that God having two wills is, um, I guess in conflict with one another, they're going to have a hard time, um, viewing a lot of texts. Let me run through quite a few to just to give you that example. One, God opposes hatred toward his people. Yet he ordained that his people be hated in Egypt. Psalm 105, 25 says he, speaking of God, turned their hearts to hate his people. He hardened Pharaoh's heart, Exodus 4.21, but commanded him to let his people go, Exodus 5.1 and, and Exodus 8.1. He makes plans that he makes plain that it is sin for David to take a military census of his people, 2 Samuel 24.1, but he ordains that he do it, 2 Samuel 24.10. He opposes adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14, but ordains that Absalom should lie with his father's wife, 2 Samuel 12, 11. He forbids, he forbids rebellion and insubordination against the king, Romans 13, 1, but ordained that Jeroboam and the ten tribes should rebel against Rehoboam, 1 Samuel 15, 23. Last one, he opposes murder, Exodus 20, 13. But uh, ordains the murder of his own son, Acts four twenty eight, and that will be brought out a little more. Essentially, our opponents will see this as two conflicting things. But let me provide further reasoning. Scripture teaches that God accomplished His will. So my position, my ultimate, what I'm starting off with: if you don't recognize these two wills, then you're going to have a hard time viewing the scriptures. Let me give another one. Job forty two two says. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So if you just hold that God, that God just has one will. Well, according to Job, not even his his revealed will can be broken. But obviously, I believe Job is speaking about his his secret will that God sovereignly brings about. Men break his revealed law every day. Men murder, men lie. And so. Job is speaking about the secret decree that God sovereignly brings about and that no man can thwart. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So here it is very clear when God plans something, when it's in his counsel or decree to bring it about, it happens. He frustrates their plans. Notice it's, it is not man that frustrates God's plan. Whatever the sovereign Lord chooses to bring about, whatever God has decreed that will happen, 
it will happen. And which which one of the clay can stand to the potter and say, why have you done this? None of us can. Since God has a purpose in bringing about that action, my my, my partner will, will bring out further evidence of that. But I'm just laying a foundation for some of these things. Another text, Isaiah 46, 10 and 11. Notice, notice, the, notice the language here. Declaring the end from the beginning. Notice, this is what God does. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Everything God purposes, he accomplishes. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Now, the, my opponents will have to take the position that God, God's plans don't always happen. His purposes sometimes don't come. But not according to Isaiah. Not according to what the Holy Spirit has revealed for Isaiah to write. I definitely don't take that position. And this, so these are a lot of Old Testament texts, right? So Ephesians 1.11 brings about that same thing. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But I know, th I know the answer. Well, yes, he will eventually make something good out of all. No, no. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the point. Now, this doesn't take away real choice because I know that will be one of the main objections. If God decrees something, it takes away free will. It takes away human responsibility. My, my position, it doesn't take away real choice. If God's decree or predestination of an event invalidates choice, then the cross of Christ wasn't a real act of choice since it was predestined by God. So if you're going to make a an argument of, well, if God decrees everything, then that means it's not a real choice. If he predestines an act to happen, you know, and it, it can't be thwarted, well, you're going to have to ultimately give that same standard for the cross and say, well, cross, Christ just did what he had to do. He didn't really have a choice in the matter, but it's clear he did. There was real choice. We see that in the garden. And so it does not take away real choice. So I, I hope we don't have double standards. My last point is why this is so important. Romans 8, 28. And we know that we, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why is this important? Because I can stand and look at the person with, with cancer who has lost their child and say, God is truly sovereign over this. And, and, and especially if you, you're giving pastoral counselship to someone, God is working in this for your good. It's not he's trying to go find some good. No, he actually had good intentions in this. Though you can't see it, though we may not know the, right, God hasn't revealed that um, answer to why, we can trust according to scripture, that he has a good intention. And so though God decrees evil, he decrees sin, he ordains it, he predestined it, God actually has a good intention behind it. And that is 
to redeem a new humanity, a new people. And so I, I, I definitely don't believe that God is just um, playing chess with humanity, um, reacting to all the things that we mess up. And he's just pretty much sweeping, sweeping the broom and sweep, sweeping up our trash. No, God is um, sovereign over all these events. So I know that's close to my time. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, relinquish the last rest. Sweet. Hey, good opening for this debate, man. That was a strong uh, position to take on your end. Hey, we're going to turn it over to Dave now. Switch the camera over to you. And let me get this uh, timer set here. And I'm going to set mine as well. You don't trust me at all, do you? No, it's just like a minute behind on the thing. <laughs> all right, buddy, you're up. Take I'm it away whenever you're ready. I can go for 11 minutes. <laughs> oh. Well, I'll just quit whenever. All right. You guys ready? Cool. We're good, buddy. You got it. All right. So thanks again, Josh, for, for having me on. Really looking forward to this discussion. I think it's going to be a good time. I think it's going to be edifying for all of us. So all four of us will agree that one of the most heavily debated topics throughout Christian history has been the relationship between God's divine decree and human sin and evil. Now, the historic reform position is that both sin and evil are part of God's eternal decree, and every sinful act that comes to pass is ordained by God. So in the opening minutes, I want to take a look at two of the primary texts which teach God's active ordination of human sin, and then we'll analyze some common arguments, uh, or at least a common argument, made by the opponents of the reform position. So what Chris and I both want to show is that the clear and consistent teaching of the Bible from before the foundation of the world, God ordained everything that will come to pass, including sin and evil, yet he did so without violating the will of man and to bring about an ultimately good end. So two passages which speak with great clarity regarding the ordination of sin uh, and evil are Acts uh, 4, 27 through 28 and Genesis 50, verses 20. Now the book of Genesis recounts the story of Joseph's brother selling him into Egyptian slavery after initially conspiring to kill him. While Joseph suffered many traumatic events in Egypt, he's ultimately elevated to become Egypt's second-in-command. As Joseph's brothers followed his feet, no doubt begging for mercy and forgiveness for their past sins, Joseph responds to them and says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. But does this mean God ordained and rendered certain the acts to take place? Roger Olson says no, quote, Arminians are well aware of the Calvinist argument based on the Genesis narrative where Joseph's brothers meant his captivity for evil, but God meant it for good. They simply do not believe this proves God ordains evil, but good may come of it. Arminians believe God permits evil and brings good out of it. Now, even for non-Arminians, this is typically the initial go-to for the opponent of Reformed theology. But the text just doesn't allow this position. First, the text itself states that God meant the sin for good, just as the brothers meant it for evil. It will not be argued tonight that the brothers had evil intentions in selling Joseph into slavery, but the same Hebrew root word is used to describe God's intentions. If one seeks to consistently argue from this text that Joseph's brothers actually intended evil in their actions, it becomes necessary to acknowledge God actually intended this same action to happen for good. Now, on a grammatical level, there's no reason to suggest Joseph's brothers intended evil, but God simply maybe looked down the corridors of time and used what they would do. 
What I believe is a more glaring problem for this bare permission argument comes from the uniqueness of Joseph and his prophetic abilities. See, the very thing that caused Joseph to be elevated to such a high level of command within Egypt is that which caused his brothers to sell him into slavery in the first place. According to Genesis 37, Joseph's prophetic dreams were the catalyst that led his brothers to become jealous and sell him into slavery. We see here that God had already given Joseph the gift of prophecy before his brothers acted wickedly. And again, the brothers' jealousy over his ability to interpret dreams is the reason Scripture gives for the evil actions. It doesn't make sense to suggest God gave Joseph this gift of prophecy because he looked down the corridors of time and saw what Joseph would do because of this prophecy. As anyone can see, that argument is pretty circular. But in my opinion, the most powerful example of God ordaining sin to accomplish good, his good pleasure is found in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. The verses state, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand had predestined to take place. Now these two verses explain that God predestined Herod, Pilate, Judas, and many others together to make decisions that would result in the crucifixion of Jesus. But they did it for the purpose of bringing God's plan to pass. Now, Christians unanimously agree that the betrayal and execution of Jesus was an evil act, but the text is clear. Not only did God predestine the evil act to take place, he predestined the specific people who would be brought together to accomplish it. Now, arguably the most significant point raised by Acts 4, 27 through 28, is that it presents the greatest evil ever committed, the execution of the sinless Christ as part of God's eternal predestined plan. But notice again, it's not just the crucifixion that is predestined, but the very people who would carry it out. If it's going to be suggested tonight that the men predestined here could have legitimately chosen to do otherwise, it raises some serious issues. Is Jesus truly the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Was Isaiah 53 prophecy that would infallibly come to pass, or could it have failed and rendered scripture imperfect? These questions have huge theological implications, and we can't just brush them aside. But if Joseph's brothers and Herod and Pilate could not have acted differently, how can they still be held responsible for their sin? Jacob Arminius said, quote, We might also infer that God is the only sinner. For a man who is impelled by an irresistible force to commit sin cannot be said to sin himself. Now, if man sinned because God compelled him to sin, Arminius would be correct in his assessment. But he failed to understand the effect of the fall on man's nature. In fact, the vast majority of objections to Reformed theology come from a misunderstanding of man's ability. A man doesn't need to be compelled to commit sin. Man's fallen nature sets him up as a rebel against God who seeks to turn away from him at every opportunity. Genesis 50 and Acts 4 are best explained by understanding God's decree and man's responsibility in compatibilistic terms. Compatibilism can be understood as the idea that humans will always choose according to their desires, and for a fallen man, this desire will be rebellion against God. Thus, God can hold Joseph's brothers accountable for their wicked actions, because the intentions of their heart in committing these actions were evil. Likewise, God can rightly judge Judas for the betrayal of Jesus, not because God was uninvolved in bringing the event to pass, but because every intention of Judas's heart in betraying Jesus was wicked. God actively ordains the sin of man and renders certain that it will come to pass, but he by no means frustrates the will of man in doing so. Man's wickedness is always looking to rebel against God's law, and it neither makes God unjust nor the author of sin to at times use these desires to bring about his good purposes.
Now, although the idea that God ordains evil makes many uncomfortable, a proper understanding of the Reformed view on this matter should have the opposite effect. Evil exists, there's no denying it, and its existence must be accepted for us to live life rationally. The question isn't, does evil exist, but rather, does evil have a purpose? To affirm that evil exists and is part of God's eternal decree is to recognize God has a purpose in bringing uh, good to pass. We know that God is an ultimately good and holy God, and we've already seen two occurrences in Scripture where God predestined the acts of wicked men to accomplish his good purposes. It's more comforting for a Christian to recognize God is working all things together for good than to affirm a meaningless, purposeless evil that just leaves God eternally frustrated. Now, far and away, the most common objection to this understanding of the Reformed view is based upon the defense of free will. Now, Norman Geisler picks up on this on his popular book, Chosen But Free. Geisler defines free will as, quote, free will means the ability to do otherwise. Humans are truly free, having the power of contrary choice. But in Geisler's explanation of Acts 4, 27 through 28, he says, quote, Notice that Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jewish leaders conspired and did by their free will, but God's power and will had decided beforehand what would happen. Both of these statements are true. Now, sometimes all that's necessary to debunk a claim is a simple question, how? Reformed theologians affirm both these statements are true, but we do so because we understand them in compatibilistic terms. If, as Geyser states, free will means the ability to actually be able to do otherwise, could Herod and Pilate have chosen not to have Christ crucified? If these men could not have done otherwise, due to the predestined plan of God or infallible foreknowledge, their free will decision fails to meet Geisler's own standard of what's required for men to be truly free. But does this free will defense even really make sense? Again, if sin is necessary for free will, why? Was God incapable of creating a world where man could make genuine free will choices without sinning? Now, maybe the answer will be it's necessary for love, and rejecting God is clearly a sin. And we all know that, quote-unquote, love cannot be real unless a man has the ability to reject God and do otherwise. But even if the Calvinist grants this to the objector, it still doesn't explain why it's necessary that murder and rape and other heinous sins exist. But these things certainly do exist. It's not enough to simply say, eh, they're necessary for free will without ever attempting to ground that claim, especially when we as Christians recognize all sin will be absent from heaven. It's human nature to struggle with understanding why God would ordain an evil act to occur, especially when the act is personal. In these moments, it's important to look back to the cross and recognize that without God ordaining the greatest evil act ever committed, we would have no hope for an eternity spent with him. Rather than attempting to figure out God's secret will and purposes, we should simply trust that the holy and good God of Scripture will do right by the world he's created. Scripture tells us that which is evil, and we're to understand evil is always evil, and nothing less. When God uses evil, he does not do so for the sake of evil itself, but to bring about good. A Christian must never call good evil or evil good, but it's not a violation of that command to conclude that an evil act is always evil. It exists for a reason, for a purpose. It can't be argued that evil doesn't exist. It can't be argued that God was forced to create. The infinitely holy and good God decided to create a world in which evil exists, and for that reason, we must trust that our Creator did so for an ultimately good purpose. And that's actually about 15 seconds past my time. Sorry about that. Sweet. No worries, man. You are good. The timer's still going, and uh, we've got five minutes for rebuttal. 
as I understand it. So that'll be me, and I'll go first, uh, and then we'll turn it over to James to go from there. So let me switch the camera over to myself, <clears throat> and we'll go from there. So, okay, guys, so <laughs> I've got to be honest. This is the discussion that we're having tonight. We all, we all claim to be Christians uh, that, that are on this, this show tonight in this debate, um, I do believe that we all are Christians. I do believe that Christians can still be Christians and fall into a very poor systematic. And uh, in this regard, when we're answering this question right here, I am telling you guys as brothers in Christ, you are taking a position that is slanderous towards the character of God when it comes to answering this question that God decreased sin. Now, you took the liberty to say uh, that uh, both of you did this. You said that the definition of a decree can also be uh, God to ordain or to bring it to pass. Now, um, what you're saying is that God does ordain sin, that he ordains evil, and that he actually wants them to come to pass. All right, so I say that that's absolutely insane for a Christian to take this position. What you're doing is you're, you're, you're failing to recognize that there is a, a God of this world who is called the devil, Satan, and uh, what we would call other devils and angels that follow him that are actually working evil and sin out in this world in the hearts and minds of men to cause things to come to pass, and that is not God. The ultimate position that I am taking is uh, that God does not decree sin, that God does not cause evil, that God does not cause uh, sin to come to pass, but, but, but that God is actually the redemptive work out of these evil things, that he doesn't want them to come to pass. So Chris, automatically out of the gate, he's arguing that God does decree evil and sin and ordains and actually predestines it. So what you're saying is, from the Calvinistic point of view, that God, because he foreknows what will happen, that means he's predestined and therefore caused it to happen. And because God foreknows or knows what will happen, it cannot and will not happen otherwise. So the ultimate question that we have to answer is, what is foreknowledge, okay? So foreknowledge is obviously going to be uh, God's ability to know, all right, in advance. Now what we're saying is, uh, from our perspective, that just because God knows what's going to happen doesn't mean that he is causing it to happen. Now this is where you get into uh, the topic of, uh, the topic of um, what was I going to say? Um, open theism and defining what open theism is or compatibilism, and that's not the topic of the debate tonight. Uh, now, you guys have pointed out and been very careful to point out that evil, without God having predestined or ordained or decreed it to come to pass, doesn't have any purpose behind it. But what I, am, I would argue in response to that is that evil does have a purpose behind it, and that's to be evil. It doesn't have anything to do with a perfectly omnibenevolent God who is all good and has no evil in him. So what you're saying from the Calvinist perspective is that because God ordains and decrees evil, and I'm saying that he doesn't, but you're saying that he does, therefore in, in order for God to do something like that, he has to be able to do something that is only that he's only able to do within his character. So if God is able to decree evil and bring it to pass and cause it and, and predestine it, then God must have evil within himself. Now, if this is the position that you're taking, and as a Calvinist, you ultimately have to stand by that, that God does have evil within his nature. You have to define that. You have to prove that God doesn't have evil in his nature, or you have to drop the systematic that says that God actually does ordain evil because it's something that he wants to come to pass. Now, there's a couple of things that you brought up within the Bible. One of them would be Genesis chapter 50, and I'm sure we'll address this 
uh, in our cross-examination, and, and I hope that we do. The other was the execution of, this is your words, uh, Dave, you said, the execution of the sinless Christ was the greatest evil determined in history and was done by God himself. Now, let's look at Genesis 50 first. I've got about a minute and a half to touch these things. If we look at the narrative here, you look at, at, at Joseph's brothers who were jealous of him. Uh, he, they were jealous of the favor that he had with his father, and, and so they sought ultimately to murder him. They sought to murder him. And, and Joseph, if you guys don't, don't know it, is probably the greatest type of Christ in the entire Bible uh, in the things that actually happened to him. They, they're typo, typologically um, very similar in the number of things that actually happened to Joseph to what actually happens to Christ. But let me sum it up this way, and then I'll turn it over to James, and, and he can have at it as well. The ultimate uh, cause in the situation where the evil came to pass, where it says that uh, they meant it for his his uh, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for his good, is not the 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 considering the fact that what they actually determined within themselves and what God determined. So what you are saying as a, as a compatibilist Calvinist who says that God decrees evil is that God meant the evil to come to pass and decreed it and ordained it and predestined that to happen. What I'm saying is the opposite that I, of that. God was actually the redemptive power to redeem the evil that came out of that situation, which is what God intended. So he meant it for the good. That was the good. And I'll sum it up this way, and then we'll turn it over to James. I say this, the execution of the sinless Christ, which is God manifest in the flesh, was not the greatest evil that ever determined in history that was done by God himself, but it was the greatest act of love that the world will ever know that is the opposite of evil, that redeemed evil and provided a way out of the evil natures that we have, that we can have eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So uh, let's turn it over to you, James, and I'll put the time up on the clock, and you'll have five minutes. <coughs> <clears throat> Starting now? Yes, sir. You're good to go. All right. So, yeah, again, this is like my first debate, you know, proper. So just bear with me. I'm going to try and get my bearings here. Um, it's also very cold where I'm at. So try not to shiver too much. Um, so I just want to go kind of start with Chris and, and what he said. And and then I'll go and address some of the things that Dave said. I mean, ultimately, I think a lot of what was discussed, you know, I will be presenting my position in response just by the nature of the topic of the debate in my opening statement. So, um, you know, I don't want to spend too much time here, but, um, you know, let's just start with the language of uh, whatsoever comes to pass, you know, per the Westminster Convention of Faith. I just want to we'll sort of peel away the distinctive terminology that's used, um, and not, not to remove it, but just to really probe it. So when we talk about, you know, like whatsoever comes to pass, I really, you know, want to challenge uh, the Calvinists here to, really substantiate that idea um, because, I mean, as I'll, as I'll uh, present in my opening statement, I think even a lot of Calvinists, I don't want to, you know, try and wedge you guys against, you know, any other Calvinists because I know, you know, Calvinists are very diverse, um, but, you know, even, even other Calvinists take certain passages like the one in Isaiah referring to, uh, you know, God declaring the end from the beginning as speaking primarily to his foreknowledge. And, um, you know, so I, I really want to, like, challenge you guys to really kind of construct where you derive this idea that God, uh, you know, exhaustively unilaterally decreed whatsoever comes to pass, because I just don't see the scripture as necessitating that idea. Um, I also want to, you know, like touch on terms like author of sin. Um, I know that that's sort of like used as a, as a cudgel against Calvinism. Um, I'm fine with, you know, leaving that behind. Although I do think effectively, I mean, if we want to say that, 
God is the author of life or God is the author of this or that. I don't think that it has to be, you know, used derogatorily towards Calvinism. I mean, I, I just do think it's a natural sort of, uh, it's like effectively what God would be, I think, in Calvinism, the author of sin. I don't think that implies that God is, under Calvinism, sinful for being the author of sin. But anyway, so I just think terms like that, I'm fine with just, you know, disposing of that. I wouldn't really claim that. I mean, so, but even if we look at the idea of God being the author of sin, I mean, you know, or God, you know, decreeing sin, just, just thinking, just thinking on those lines. I do think, you know, when we say, when we try to, when Calvinist compatibilists try to distinguish between intentions and action, they're both decreed by God under Calvinism. I mean, under compatibilism, especially. And so I don't think that that necessarily gets away from that, like that distinction to me doesn't seem any, uh, you know, worth, worth any, you know, any, it just doesn't seem worth worthwhile to me to make that distinction when talking about compatibilism. So um, the idea of there's no evil desire in him, but at the same time, so Chris kind of stated something to look to the effect of that there's no evil desire in, in God. But then again, you would claim that, you know, according to the Isaiah passage, that it pleases him to decree evil because of your understanding of, you know, Isaiah and the Psalms where it says, you know, I will do all that I please. So, you know, I want to sort of like really challenge you to, to really kind of see if those two ideas can be held in concert. The idea of no evil, uh, you know, that he desires no evil or that no evil desire resides in him. But yet again, but yet again, he uh, he's pleased to decree evil. So um, also the idea of <clears throat> two wills, uh, prescriptive versus descriptive. Uh, you know, this, I believe this is inferred based on your inductive reasoning of the passages you cited, but I mean, I really would challenge you again to sort of substantiate this, this idea. I mean, I know, so I, I would think that Calvinists would probably be okay with claiming that it's, it's something that's inferred from reading the text. I, I just, again, I think this is more terminology that sort of, I would say is, is not really, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I just, I don't really think it's something that's, um, established in scripture so i think per, like personally i mean i will be presenting my view but i mean i do think that we can understand god's will in a multifaceted sense um i don't you know i don't think we need to sort of like chop god's will up into into separate and compartmentalize it um if you hold to god uh, if you hold the idea that god so chris i think if you hold that god has one will um and, sorry sorry again i'm just reading from, from my notes um let's go let's go let's go to this um god frustrates man's plans um, this is what I said, and, and I affirm this. And of course, God's purpose is preeminent, and it, it cannot be thwarted. That's that's a given. Um, God declares the end from the beginning. Again, I'll, I'll go on this in, in my opening statement. So let me just try and go through this here because my time's running short. Um, Ephesians one eleven. I will address this if time permits after because I didn't include it in my opening just because I didn't know I, I, if I would have time. But um, it looks like I'm coming up here on five minutes. So let me know how I'm doing. So I got, are you, am I about there? Am you I about can cut it, you can, yeah, you're about five minutes. It, it, if you want to, if you're good. Um, yeah, you I wanted to just try to jump into this real quick because, I mean, I don't know if we'll have time at the end. Um, I just want to say, you know, besides the fact that the immediate context here in Ephesians 1, uh, nowhere speaks of God working sin or willing sin or decreeing sin. You know, I believe that we can show that all things being worked out by the by God does not include literally everything that happens, including sin. And look at Proverbs 1 because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. Uh, the Septuagint uses the same Greek uh, term for counsel as used in Ephesians 1.11, uh, but you made void my counsels, and to my reproofs you did not give heed. So, I mean, uh, the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Same Greek term. 
So, I mean, the idea isn't that it was God's counsel for men to reject God's counsel, or uh, it was God's counsel for men to reject God's counsel. That seems sort of, you know, illogical. Uh, but either that God works in the midst of everything to accomplish his counsel and plans, uh, or God accomplishes all things which are in line with or proceeding from his will, as if, as the uh, ISV puts it, in the Messiah we are also chosen when we are predestined according to the purpose of the one who does everything that he wills to do. So everything according to his counsel. He does everything that is in line with his counsel. That's that's how I would interpret that passage. But um, I think that's that's good. And I'm sorry I didn't get to address Dave's points. I was just didn't realize how much how time how, how fast time would go. No, you're good. There's a lot of material in there. There's no way to address it all. There's more I wanted to address well, but I'm sure we'll be able to get into that in the dialogue and cross X. So um, now we'll transition to our negative, uh, which is James. You're going to kick us off from there. Is that right? Yeah, sounds good. Cool. Have at it, man, and then I'll follow up from there, and we'll turn it over to rebuttals. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and go real quick here. Um, so so I want to start by echoing the words of Paul, where in uh, Romans eleven thirty three he exclaims, you know, oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. I mean, I open with this verse because it's my belief that in discussing the nature of God's decrees. Uh, whether one is a Calvinist or not, it's important to approach uh, this subject with a measure of uh, epistemic humility. I think we need to recognize our own limitations. And that's not to say that, you know, uh, we can't discuss this or, you know, it's, it's fruitless to discuss this. I just think it's important that we be honest with ourselves when we start meandering into discussions about the nature of God's knowledge and, and decrees so that we don't get puffed up in any, uh, you know, speculation. Uh, and, and to be clear, I do affirm that. So, so again, I just, I, I want to make sure that, you know, I don't think this is, uh, this is a fruitless discussion, but... Um, you know, I will be addressing several key passages in my statement here, which are co commonly used by Calvinists to express their view, but which I think actually support uh, a view which affirms how God interacts with his creatures to accomplish his plans and purposes and how he tolerates the free actions of man, um, actions which do not originate from a unilateral de unilateral decree comprised of, quote-unquote, whatsoever may come to pass, uh, per the Westminster Confession of Faith. In Scripture, we see examples of God's decrees. Note, I said decrees, plural. It's apparent when surveying scripture, mainly looking at the Hebrew term for decree, that God has various decrees, including ones concerning sand, Jeremiah 5.22, concerning the sea, concerning the rain, Job 28.26, concerning the heavens. God also has decrees concerning behavioral rules and regulations for Israel, concerning Jesus, concerning Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4.24, <clears throat> and possibly concerning Job in Job 23.14. Um, and I say possibly because that section of, the, of Job doesn't exist in the Septuagint, from what I can tell. So in some of these instances, for instance, regarding God's behavioral decrees for Israel, we can understand them under non-Calvinism and Calvinism alike as prescriptive and not irresistible. God's decrees in some cases may even involve some level of mutability um, or, you know, the ability to be changed. For instance, God's decree to make Nebuchadnezzar mentally unfit was announced prior to it taking effect, with Daniel suggesting that if Nebuchadnezzar were to repent, then his prosperity might have been allowed to continue, Daniel 4.27. Uh, relatedly, God is also said to declare national uprooting in Jeremiah 18, as well as to plan disaster. Uh, in the former case, Jeremiah in, in Jeremiah 18:7, Jeremiah records that God's pronouncements of uprooting nations are, are mutable. God declares that He will not perform what He announces if a nation were to repent. God's plan to do uh, to judicially bring disaster upon Israel is not said to consist of God decreeing the sinful actions of men against Israel, but rather God's plan to bring disaster. It is mainly comprised of the withdrawal of his hand of protection, which leaves Israel vulnerable to foreign invaders, who then carry out disaster against them. From what I gather, I don't see where it's justified scripturally to sum all these various decrees up, you know, as we saw before, 
into a unilateral uh, whatsoever may come to pass eternal decree, which uh, you know as described or, or laid out by the Westminster Confession of Faith. Even when even when only taking into account the non-prescriptive decrees, but nevertheless we can see from the examples I provided that not only are God's decrees sometimes subject to mutability in terms of how they play out in time, but also I maintain that nowhere does Scripture refer to God decreeing a single sin directly. I can do affirm that God may decree and plan evil in the sense of calamity and plagues, natural disaster and destruction, or the removal of, the, of his protection combined with his toleration of the hostility of other nations. But I do not affirm that God devises and decrees the, sin, uh, the sinful thoughts and actions of men directly. To me, that would seem incongruent with God's revealed character and justice. Sometimes Calvinists attempt to derive an eternal unilateral decree from texts like Isaiah 46.10, which reads, I make known the end from the beginning, mentioned times, what is uh, still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do that all I I will do all that I please. So even John Piper, a Calvinist, a notable Calvinist, recognizes that uh, the first half of this verse pertains to God's foreknowledge. Notice to the second half of this verse where God says, My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. It does not say, I have exhaustively decreed everything and all that is done is what pleases me. So you see there's there's a difference there when when recognizing that distinction between there's a set of things that happen that's you know in God's purpose and, and that you know he will irresistibly do. But that doesn't include everything that happens. So, you know, if you, if you imagine like a Venn diagram, uh, all that God will do, basically, you know, that's his purpose. That's what he decided to do. And then there's other things that happen that are not within his purpose, but that he works among and he, work, you know, he works in the midst of. Um, so, so going forward here, you know, it's important to recognize that distinction. There are many things that occur which absolutely do not please God, as is clearly stated in Psalm 5.4. So Calvinists seem to want to have it both ways. That God distances Himself from things that don't please Him, yet everything that occur everything that occurs is what pleases Him in accordance with the unilateral decree. So really, that you know the, the Hebrew term hafetz or or whatever you know we want to look at that um, God being pleased or delighting in something. You know, I really think that that uh, goes against the Calvinist interpretation of Isaiah forty six ten. So what about the passages Calvinists generally use to support the compatibilist notion of human sinfulness being simultaneously decreed by God, yet also attributed to the sinful intentions of men? Starting in the Old Testament, of course, the account in Genesis 50-20, where jo Joseph reassures his brothers that though they intended to do him harm by selling him into slavery, God intended it for good to save many lives. The Calvinists take this to mean that the single action of the brothers selling Joseph into slavery is being described as sinfully intended on the brothers' part, but intended for good on God's part. This interpretation is just not necessary. One can simply understand that this, uh, this, is, God, this is as God planning a genuinely good thing, the saving of many people, and that part of God's plan to do that included his toleration of Joseph's brother's free, simple choices and schemes. The idea is that God not only is gloriously seen as the great redeemer and provider in the situation, but also that he's able to think way farther ahead than people ever could. So how about Assyria and Isaiah 10? Is God's use of Assyria an example of Calvinist compatibilism? First, let's remember that in Calvinism, God's decree not only dictates Assyria's actions, but also the intentions of Assyria as well. It's not necessary to impose this sort of uh, compatibilism onto the text. We can understand God's use of Assyria as metaphorically describing God's judicial decision to allow Israel to be besieged by Assyria in the withdrawal of, of his protection. And since Assyria was puffed up and had evil intentions, and God is a just judge, that is no respecter of persons, God promises to punish Assyria for their evil actions as well. And, and, and looking at this too, the effects of this, in Zechariah uh, 1, 14, uh, through 15, God indicates that while he was only a little angry, the nations went too far in fulfilling God's punishment toward Israel. A similar notion is expressed by God in Isaiah 47.6.
But why, if God decrees everything, would anything be considered by, by God to be too far? Under Calvinism, God's punishment, along with everything else, should always be exactly in line with God's decree. Is the idea of something going too far indicating that God wasn't sovereign enough to control the degree to which the nations punished Israel? No, rather, I think that, God's, uh, that God tolerated the nation's hostility toward Israel to satisfy his punishment. But that their genuine freedom was still intact inasmuch that they could do things which God did not intend or decree by simply going above and beyond in their hostility. For instance, if the United States military had gone and liberated a, a Nazi concentration camp, and I know, you know, Godwin's law, I don't want to mention the Nazis, but, um, but, but if, if, if the U.S. were to do that, and, and, and then the U.S. used military force against Nazis to do so, is that action sinful? Then why in Calvinism do we assume that God in allowing Assyria to punish Israel is wholly sinful on their part? I think it seems more reasonable to understand God as delivering the righteous judgment of Israel through a third party, while also not condoning the ways in which the Assyrians sinfully went above and beyond in their treatment of Israel. So too, if the U.S. military used force in order to fulfill the righteous mission, like liberating a concentration camp, but also sinfully went beyond that and plundered Germany's wealth for sinful purposes and ravaged Germany's women and so on, then they would be worthy of being punished for those wrongdoings. So moving now on to the New Testament, we have the sort of quintessential passage which the Calvinist claims exemplifies their compatibilism. Uh, I just see how much time I have here left. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it's 428, which says about the crucifixion that they carried out with your hand and will had had decided beforehand what happened. This is taken by the Calvinist compatibilists to mean that <clears throat> God eternally decreed the sinful actions of men in regards to the crucifixion of Jesus. While I do recognize that this passage teaches that God decided the death of Jesus beforehand, it doesn't necessitate the idea that God Calvinistically decreed the free decisions of the people involved in Jesus' death, or that, or that God's decision was the origin of their decisions but rather that, that God's plan and, and uh, decision included his tolerating of their sinful actions, knowing perfectly what would take place given the circumstances. Let's also remember how Acts 2.23 describes this interaction. He was handed over by, the, by God's set plan and foreknowledge, and you, by the hands of the lawless, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's decision involved his foreknowledge, and clearly there's a distinction described here. The focus on God is centered, the focus on, God is centered on the handing over of Jesus into the hands of men, according to his foreknowledge and plan, while on the other hand, the focus on man is centered on the sinful act of lawlessly crucifying him to death. Two distinct actions which God decided beforehand should occur, the primary action of God in handing Jesus over, and the primary actions of sinful men in putting Jesus to death. Through the death of Jesus, uh, sorry, though the, though the death of Jesus is often described from a top-down Godward pers perspective in Scripture, for instance, uh, when Jesus says of his life in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And from the Hebrew in Isaiah 53.10, yet the Lord was willing to crush him and, make, and he made him suffer. I think we take it too far to mean that God designed specific simple choices men would make in carrying out the death of Jesus. I think the right way to understand this concept is that in God's counsel, you know, he perfectly knew how things would unfold where he could give Jesus over, to, uh, give Jesus over into the hands of the sinful men, given the specific set of, a set of circumstances involved. And yet he willingly decided to tolerate their sinful actions anyway in order to bring about the greatest hope that sinful men could ever have, the free gift of salvation. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I think that's pretty much it. I, I want to, um, yeah, that's that's 10 minutes for me. I don't know where we're at. Yeah, you're right. You're right there, man. So, all right, cool. that'll be, let me put the timer up for myself. And that'll be 10 minutes for me. And we'll turn it over to you all for the rebuttal.
I'll get the camera on me. So unfortunately, you guys are going to have to look at me the whole time. So, all right. So uh, our position is that God has not decreed sin anywhere in the Bible, and that in fact He commands men not to sin all over the Bible. It's up to our opponents today to actually provide a scriptural affirmative that God has in fact decreed sin and yet reconciles this affirmative, and yet reconcile this affirmative with the fact that God does not sin Himself nor does he have a nature that takes any pleasure in sin. They say that God has made a decree for men to sin. It's therefore the burden of proof on the Calvinists to show where God ever wants men to sin or even causes men to sin either by nature or by coercion. So what does the Bible say about this question? In Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, Wherein have we wearied him? When you say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? In Matthew 12:35, he says, A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. This was said about men before the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, and if we're comparing this to Jesus Christ, you have to say that evil is brought about from the inside of God himself, because evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. It comes out of his heart. So therefore, God must have evil in his heart. We have to start by establishing what is actually decreed by God in Scripture, and let that be our foundation for the conversation. If this debate ceases to be established in Scripture, which I would say has been the primary focus to stay established in Scripture, but what I would say has happened is that we've philosophically gone to explain what the Scripture means in any particular point. So we have to start by establishing what is actually decreed by God in Scripture. Now here's what is, uh, is uh, described by an actual decree in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, in, in regarding the representation of sin and whether or not God decrees it or ever will decree it. It says this, Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness which ha they have prescribed. So if we're talking about two different wills, which, which, which Chris said there's no problem or no contradiction or no, uh, nothing wrong with God having two wills, uh, that there's, no, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, then we have to say, that the prescriptive and the descriptive of will of God is no problem for God to give a decree that's contrary to his character. Sure now, this, this would be the burden of proof on Chris to show us how that is not contradictory. Now, what are the decrees of God? Can we know them? Yes. A decree is simply a proclamation. It's a law. It's something to be established. Uh, this is according to Thayer, Webster, and any lexicon or dictionary you want to turn to. A decree, this word in the singular, actually shows up 49 times in the Bible. Decreed, past tense, shows up five times. Decrees, a present, shows up three times. And then out of those 57 decrees, eight of those are actually from God in the Bible. Now, I had yet to hear any one of these two Calvinists that we're talking to, when they're describing the decree of God, they've mentioned the secret decree, they've mentioned the revealed decree, they didn't mention the prescriptive or descriptive wills, but they said they're both the same. But uh, they never actually went to the scripture and showed where God gives a decree for men to sin, or God decrees sin to occur. That's the question that we're trying to answer tonight, and I believe that the Calvinists, uh, Chris and Dave, have not done that. So what I would say, I would ask the Calvinist who claims that God actually decreed sin to come to pass, where you find it in the Bible? What we've heard is, is an actual interpretation of what different passages say. And I think that's still the burden of proof that has yet to be done by the affirmative side of this debate. 
Now, it's constantly said by the Calvinist, you cannot reconcile the free will of man with the sovereignty of God because the free will of man cannot be independent of God. Therefore, it is subject to the nature and ability given within that man's nature to make choices which God has preordained or so decreed them to make. Now, what does that mean in English? It's simply saying God decreed all things to come to pass, and uh, which was quoted earlier. But instead of stop there and conform to what the rest of Calvinism says, uh, to go on to say, except for sin, our brothers in this debate tonight, and our brothers in Christ, and our opponents, then more consistent than even most bold Calvinists, uh, and even their confessions who say God even decreed sin. The Calvinist confessions are very careful to say God does not decree sin, but yet Dave and Chris are saying that it does, that God does. So this is the position of Chris and Dave tonight. They're defending God actually does decree sin and causes it to come to pass. But they even went beyond that. God decrees evil and brings that to come to pass. I'm telling you right now, that is an unbiblical position. And I plan on telling you why. So the Calvinist who takes this position, what you're desperately searching for, which was actually mentioned earlier, is the purpose within evil and the purpose within sin. What you cannot do as a Calvinist is get past your systematic that says that it, it doesn't say this, it absolutely collides with scripture in this regard. So what I'm telling you as a traditionalist and uh, a preser uh, um uh, a traditionalist, I would, I'm telling you that the purpose in sin and the purpose in evil, you, you don't need to look any further than the heart of man. You don't need to look any further than the heart of, of the angels who sinned. It, it, that's where it originates. It originated there, it, in, in their heart. You can conclude that. That's the purpose of evil and sin. It's in the heart of man. Now, the Calvinist would say, we have no problem with this. This doesn't contradict our systematic in saying that God uh, has given man free will to make the decisions that they will make, and they're free to make them. But what I'm telling you is that is a cop-out. You two both in here, and as Calvinists that are in this debate, you're both compatibilists. You both take the position that the nature that man has before he's regenerated is one which God has determined them to have, and they can only do evil and only do what is according to their nature, which God designed them to only be able to do. So therefore, God is responsible for the decisions they make, not only because he's actively foreknown them to be to occur, as a Calvinist would define, he foreknows them, therefore he predestinates them, I'm telling you that's wrong. The, the, the purpose of evil goes no further and has to go no further than the free choice of man separate from God's deterministic uh, nature that he's given to them, whether it's prescriptive or descriptive or revealed or concealed or whatever it is, if it's the secret decree, whatever it is. My friends would tell you the sinners freely chosen their evil and sinful choices, which they are only capable of making within the nature that God's given them. So we just went on to say that God actually divinely determined for them to choose what they would choose and can only choose what is according to their nature, which God designed and determined them to be able to make. I'm trying to make that sound as confusing as possible because that's what the Calvinist wants you to do. He wants you to be confused. Yeah, you have free will. You have free will. Uh, but yet we won't tell you that God actually determined what you're going to do based off the nature he designed for you to have. So it's philosophically explained away by describing God's permissive versus his prescriptive versus his secret and revealed wills. Now we know that God is, uh, that Chris has already said there's no contradiction in God having two wills, but I would tell you that it is. It's a double-minded man. If, if God has two wills, he's, he's double-minded, and therefore, according to the scripture itself, a double-minded man is unstable in all, all his ways. God is not unstable. God is not the author of confusion. God is a perfectly omnibenevolent God that is all good with no evil and no, no decree for men to sin, uh, whether it's in any part of the will that the Calvinist has described tonight. 
We know in the book of James that God doesn't tempt man with sin, uh, nor has it ever crossed his mind to do so. So in that sense, you're, I, how do you explain that? That's something that I'd like to get across a in our cross-examination. How, how, how do you reconcile that as a Calvinist? Now here's what we know about sin. Sin is immaterial until it manifests materially. It's, it's the great divide which actually separates what's good from what is evil. Evil cannot exist without good, or all evil would be good. But good can exist independently from evil and still be good and not evil. Evil is not eternal and coexistent separate from God, which is uh, what the early Manichaean Gnostics would have taught. Uh, so a traditionalist is simply trying to reconcile this question, uh, which the Calvinist would say they're trying to do as well. They're saying that you can't reconcile it without, without finding purpose, and therefore there's no purpose unless God has determined it for, to come to pass, and uh, has actually caused it to come to pass. What I'm telling you is there is no decree for men to sin, there's no decree for men to sin. God's telling you not to sin. God is the redemptive work against sin. So here's what we are going to establish, the origin of sin and evil. All right, let me do this in two minutes. God can create something contrary to his nature and yet not cause one to actually uh, uh, commit that sin or evil. This is certainly something God is capable of doing and he has done according to Isaiah 45 uh, verse 7. Evil came from God. He says that he created it. So what is evil? Evil is the choice between uh, the opposite of itself, the antecedent. Uh, it's the opposite of good. So therefore, uh, the gap between those two is filled with what we would call the free will of man. The free will of man is genuinely free will. If you want to call it libertarian, you can call it libertarian. Call it whatever you want. It's free will. It's uncoerced. It's undetermined. It's, un it's undivinely uh, caused by God to be uh, something that is only able to do something uh, that it's only able to do caused by God. So uh, with that said, let me simplify it this way. Evil is the, the great contrast to good. Men choose evil, men choose to sin. Angels chose evil, angels chose to sin. The gap between good and evil is filled with the free will of angels and men, which if men were created in the image of God and God has free will, it's not so much to say that men do have free will as God has free will. And if you say that men don't have free will and it's limited to the nature that they have, uh, determined by God, then you have to say that God doesn't have free will. That's up to the Calvinists to reconcile within themselves. Now, let me sum it up this way, and uh, we'll end on this. All right, let me see where I want to go here. All right, so here's the position that, that we're taking. Um, it, God doesn't decree sin. God doesn't decree evil. And uh, ultimately what, what the Calvinist has to answer here tonight uh, in the position that they're taking is what we call a superlapsarian position in five seconds. This means that God caused the fall. And this is up to the Calvinist to prove that God, prove that God wanted Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. That's the burden of proof on you guys. And let's uh, turn it over to rebuttals. I'll switch the camera here back to Chris. I think you're up first, aren't you? I'll let, uh, I'll let, um, brother Dave go first. All right, man. I'll switch it over to Dave. There you go. Okay. Uh, uh can you hear me? Yes, yep. sir. You're good. Put me on the spot there, K-Dub. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, I'm just playing. All right. Let me get my, uh, notes pulled up and my stopwatch going here. <clears throat> Ready? Yes, sir. All right, sweet. Okay, five minutes. Uh, so starting off, James, uh, I agree when we're discussing God's decree, there is a uh, very 
it's very important that we recognize uh, that we are not omniscient, even though God is. Uh, that's why we don't claim to know God's secret decree outside of what is uh, is told to us in Scripture. Um, you talked about all different various types of God's decrees. Okay, recognize neither Chris or I are saying that the word itself decree can only mean one thing. Neither one of us are saying that the word decree in Scripture only means one thing. That's why K-Dub was super careful to accurately define and even quote the confession of specifically what we mean when we're talking about the decree. So you have to allow us to define our own terms. You can't say, well... You look at the word decree used in scripture this way, and then the, re the words used over here differently when it's talking about God's interaction with the sea. So there you go. There's clearly no decree. Well, you didn't really do that. Uh, Josh kind of got a little bit into that, but you uh, you guys both have to allow us to define our own position there. Um, <clears throat> you talk about Isaiah 46.10. You said that's based upon God's foreknowledge. I guess Piper makes that argument. I'm not familiar with him making that argument. The text says, I make known the end from the beginning. That's a, at least in the English, that is an active thing that God does. If you are uh, more familiar with the Hebrew there and that's not the case, please let me know. You said some things God purposes to do and some things uh, God doesn't purpose to do. Well, over and over again, you guys are asking us to substantiate things. We'll substantiate that. I mean, what? how do we know? How do you know? Does, do you, are the only things that God purposes to do, the times in Scripture when God does violate man's will, for example, to keep them from sinning, are those the only times that God purposes to do it? How do you know, right? Uh, you say not everything that occurs pleases him. I think that's a bit of a misrepresentation. Um, let's try to stick with the, the language and the, art, the actual verbiage that we use because when we get into things like pleases i'm not trying to compare our understanding of something that pleases us as sinful fallen men to what pleases god i'm not even sure i would use that term in any situation um you said the action itself in reference to genesis 50 is uh what the calvinist has to say god meant for good and the brothers meant for evil no not at all the whole narrative uh, is what God meant for good. But the specific action that caused the whole narrative to kick off was the brother sin, uh, I'm sorry, sinning against Joseph and causing him to be uh, enslaved. Um, <clears throat> you said, why if God decrees everything, would a serious sin be too far? Uh, well, dude, that's like asking, why is it sin if sin is decreed, right? I mean, you're, you're messing with some... Um, some ends as well as means stuff there. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more in the discussion. Um, that's, I think, all I had for you initially. Josh, so you said we need to provide scriptural support. You said that multiple times. Dude, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to go to Genesis 50. We're trying to go to Acts 4. Uh, we would have gone to Isaiah 10 if we had more than 10 minutes. You said the burden of proof is on us. Okay, well, we've presented that positive position now. So if those scriptures mean something other than what it seems quite clear to both Josh and I, I mean, you got to get into the text. you got to tell us uh, what that means, man. Um, you also talked about the decrees. Uh, you gave a dictionary definition. I think we've, we've beat that one to death. Um you said two wills, burden of proof. There you go, man. <laughs> Again, did God want the crucifixion to happen? Yes or no? Of course he did. Of course that was part of his decree. But the crucifixion involved not just the crucifixion, but sinful actions of men. Um, let's see. What else did we have? Um, you said the Westminster uh, goes out of its way to caveat um, that... 
God doesn't decree sin. No, it says decrees all things that come to pass. And then it says such that God is not the author of sin and evil. So sin is, is clearly uh, presented in there and included in there. He said our purpose argument is just systematic. It's not pulled from scripture. Um, uh, so why, why does evil exist? Why does sin exist? Is it just for free will? If so, why does it have to exist for free will to be necessary? Um, again, most of these arguments, man, they cut against yourself as much as they cut against us. So last thing here. He said that to affirm God has two wills, a secret will and a, a revealed will, is, is double-minded, right? That creates a double-minded God. He said nature, you uh, said basically mankind is given this nature uh, by God, I assume you mean by the fall. There, you kind of got into some of that a, a little bit at the end. Well, how about this? Let me hit you with this, man. God divinely determined to create man, knowing every detail of what he would do, and he perfectly knew they wouldn't do otherwise, yet it breaks his heart and he's eternally frustrated over it. There you go. God's double-minded. You see how that's that, that's not that's not really fair, man. That's not an accurate way to think about the way that we're presenting this because it cuts in both directions. You have the exact same objection. Uh, sorry, man, I'm out of time. Sweet. Hey, uh, good rebuttal there. Let me turn it over to Chris, and I'll put five minutes up on the screen for the audience, and then we'll get into cross-examination and dialogue. You got it, man, whenever you're ready. All right. So uh, James went to, I mean, uh, Dave answered a, a lot of things I wanted to get into, but that's all right. Um, I'll go to something he left off where the point was in Acts 4.28 that I wrote this down. He says, God doesn't ne doesn't necessitate their decisions. And so I, I would say, um, yeah. I mean, it literally says, you know, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your 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 plan had predestined to take place. So if, if the, the, the dying of Jesus is... Um, predestined it's going to take place so is everything else mentioned in that text and the way to get to get around that was to jump to acts 2 to speak about well foreknowledge he saw that it would happen he knew it would happen I'll, I'll say that he knew it would happen therefore it was almost like well he knows it's going to happen therefore he decreed it so i mean well you know essentially kind of in our our um you know position you just added a foreknowledge in, into that um he started off too. I want to get to this. Um, that is uh, James. Some of God's decrees are immutable. So my question for James is: since he doesn't affirm the two wills, how does God's plan not be thwarted? There's no other way around this. If you affirm, if you don't affirm that that uh, God has two wills, He only has one will, and that's His revealed will. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure how you get around that. And so I would like an answer to that question. Um, Josh had a lot to say. Um, yeah, he started off, where does God decree sin? Um, yeah, we provided ample amount of scriptures. Um, he brought up Isaiah 10, Isaiah 10, one, one, woe to those that decrees evil. And, um, yeah, we're, so as we said, the word decree can be used in multiple ways. Um, we're not saying God commands people to do evil. We, that's why we went through that whole establishment of, or establishing the, um, the different, um, you know, d definitions of decree and, and what we meant in those distinctions. And I don't know if that was really taken into consideration. Um, Josh said, if God decrees something, then he is responsible for it. Well, I mean, 
I'm sure Josh would uh, would uh, Matt would agree that God decrees atrocities. Uh, he 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 decrees um, natural disasters, which kills millions of people, by the way. So therefore, God is responsible for murdering people. See that that argument could be turned right back around. Um, and I, I think uh, Dave brought out some uh, you know good response to that. I mean, we 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 both can make you know side remarks like that. Um, but I I got to the impression that um, and and maybe I'm wrong, but I got to the impression that Josh doesn't believe God has a decree at all that um, I'm not really sure just just from the way that it was sounding. Um, I could be wrong. So I'm open to correction on that. Um, it seems that the issue um, seems to be solved. if We just say, well, free will. But that doesn't even answer the question. Uh, and a lot of that was done, um, you know. You, you make an assertion, but you wouldn't you wouldn't show how it was how how it necessitated how it was necessary for your case to be um, like one of this. If this I didn't I didn't get why why it wasn't necessary. You said if we say man doesn't have free will, then we have to say God doesn't. Why? Uh, like a lot of your, your assertions, were, I would just want to ask why to all of them, because I don't I don't understand why um, a lot of your your explanations or rebuttals. Your your opening statement, um, you know, what what caused one to do, what caused one to, you know, make that conclusion. Um, you you kind of got into the purpose of evil a little bit, and ultimately, it seemed like the purpose of evil is just the purpose of evil, which is very circular. I mean, it it to which seems to be the purpose of evil. It doesn't really have a purpose. You know, um, God doesn't want to happen. God doesn't want evil to happen. Yet, as as a uh, day brought up. God didn't stop it from happening, um, you know. Even though I think, I think you got maybe maybe you guys did this maybe something answered. Could God have stopped that evil? Because clearly in Scripture, he he did it multiple times. We have it in Abimelech in Genesis twenty, I believe, where he does intervene. And in, in Abimelech, the king says, "God is the one who stopped me from sinning." And so, and we see that also. I would say with uh with the case and, um, with. Oh man, I'm forgetting that one. I'll, I'll come back to it if it comes back to me. But clearly, God can intervene and stop sin. So the question for you guys is, why doesn't He? And so that's my time. Sweet, that's good, man. That was a, I think, a pretty strong opening for representing the Calvinist side and then the non-Calvinist side. Um, I think we can see some of the difference that we the differences that we've gotten a lot of. A lot of material that we can open up for dialogue. So um, I think we decided what we're going to do is uh, give five-minute slots to each position. Uh, so the Calvinists, will we'll give it over to you guys first. You can have five minutes to ask us questions. Just let me know um, who you, you want to direct it at. <clears throat> do what? Do you want to do two of them? Uh, I, I, I would do I'm as many as I'm just thinking for rounding out our time. Whatever you guys, Chris... Uh, I'd be. I'm down for whatever you guys want to do. There's a. I like to me more important than the the time that we do is um yeah. it getting into the material and uh, I'll go as long yeah. as you guys want. The problem is five minutes is is two questions on stuff. Know. Is the, you know what I mean? Well, if you want to go longer, I mean, we don't have to be bound to five minutes. You know, just say, okay. hey, I want a little bit of time to answer. We can just do ten minutes and yeah, cool. there you go. Switch it over to me when you're done. Sweet. So you guys go ahead and fire away. You want me to get started? Okay. Yeah. Hey, you go uh, first. Is that what, are you all cool with that? Yes. Okay, sweet. Um, 
All right. Let me... Okay. Um, here we go. So I'd like to get kind of a short answer from both you guys on this. Um, in your view, if God decrees sin, that means sin flows from God. Is that true? James, do you want to answer that? <clears throat> I'm sorry, can you restate that? Yeah, in, in your view, if God decrees sin, that means evil and sin has to flow from God. Would you agree with that statement? <clears throat> I would just respond in saying that flows from God can be you know interpreted loosely. I would just say, well, the way I would phrase it is that um, that evil, sin, everything, since evil and sin is an event in, you know, within the constraints of time, that that all originated under Calvinism in God's decree according to what Calvinism maintains. Okay, so regardless good. of if, yeah, regardless of if it like emanates from God's nature or anything like that, I'm not, you know, that's, that's, I guess a different, I, I would okay. think that's different than what you were saying, Josh, because it seemed like you were saying it would emanate from his nature. Yeah. I would say God. that uh, if, if you're saying it flows from God, that means that God wants it to, to occur, whether, it, and you would describe it uh, from the way that I understand it, uh, in his secret will, the revealed will would obviously say, uh, well, you know, God's commanding men not to sin, but yet men do sin anyway, and God knew they would sin, so he wanted them to sin, therefore it flows from God. So I would say the Calvinists would take that position, I don't take that position, no. Okay, so, that's, so that strikes uh, Chris and I as kind of an arbitrary statement, right? Could I not just as easily say... Um, but since God decrees to create a universe in which uni evil will necessarily exist, that all evil flows from God, would that not be just as consistent as your position? No. It just seems like an arbitrary statement. I, I would say that the arbitrary statement would be that God has actually chosen what would occur, including sin, and has caused it and determined it to come to pass by uh, whether it's certain individuals and, and through his will to allow it to come to pass and saying, well, he's decreed it uh, in whatever decree you want to say. So I would, I would say... Um, no, I, I don't think it's arbitrary. Okay. If I could just add that real quick, um, it's like the only thing I would say is really like the main point for me that encapsulates, encapsulates the, the main point of distinction and where we disagree, in my opinion, is that, uh, you know, I don't believe that the terminus or the origin of the decision that man, that men make is from God in terms of, you know, I believe God uh, imbues men with the ability to determine his own choices um, through his, you know, if you want to say middle knowledge, that's how he knows what they would choose. Uh, you know, and that, go ahead. Well, I would piggyback off that because ultimately it comes down to when sin was introduced to the world. And, and, and when we look at that, we would all say, well, yeah, it was introduced by Adam, but then we look at the cause. Okay, so God, and, and, and this is what you're getting at. You're saying, well, God knew this world would have sin in it, and yet he created it anyway, knowing that it would occur. All right, because God is omniscient. So therefore, God knew it would happen and he allowed it to happen. So he's the cause of it happening. I'm saying, no, that's not the case. God is the redemptive. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying that. Oh, okay. I thought that's no, what you were saying. I'm, I'm saying is not saying that just as arbitrary of a statement as what your objection was. But anyway, let's, let's keep pressing. Okay. Um, so I could have just said no and we'd have moved on. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, did God give Joseph his gift of prophecy because he looked down the corridors of time and saw what uh, would become of it? Well, we know from the book of Isaiah that uh, the gift of prophecy 
um, is is simply the, uh, the Holy Spirit speaking through men. So a lot of the times, guys were making prophecies and they didn't even know what they were making a prophecy about. And you can but see you would, that. You would recognize that Joseph's ability to interpret dreams was prophetic, right? It wasn't actually his ability to interpret dreams because even, even Daniel in the book of Daniel says that uh, the interpretation of dreams are of no private interpretation, but it comes from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, no one questions that it comes from the Holy Spirit. I'm saying, did not Joseph interpret dreams prior to his brothers being sold, uh, selling him into slavery? And in fact, doesn't the text tell us that that's the very reason that they're jealous of him? Uh, I, I would have to see where the text says that that's the very reason. I, don't, I think it's, that it had a lot uh, to do with the favor that Maybe with we can get to it uh, in the cross X uh, for you guys if you want, whatever. Last question, and I'll kick it to Chris. Could Herod and Pontius Pilate have actually chosen to do other than what they did and rendered Isaiah 53 um, as inaccurate? Who did you say that Chris. for? You said Chris. Uh, no, I said I'll, I'll kick it over to Chris after that question. Oh. Oh, Last question is, could Herod and Pontius Pilate have actually chosen to do other than what they did and then that, uh, that rendered Isaiah 53 inaccurate because obviously the specific way in which he was killed is is prophesied james i know that i know that you had uh, more that you wanted to talk about on this you'd mentioned that in a few tweets let me give my short answer and then i'll turn it over to you to answer um i would say yes they could have because uh what acts 428 is saying it's not it's not referencing the individual choices that those individuals would have made. It's referencing the events. So the events is what was determined. The individuals, uh, it even says, if you, if you look at the verses before that, that they determined it within themselves to do that, and, and it was the, the time of when those events would occur. So that's what I would say. James? Yeah, yeah. So let me just interject. I mean, the point here is that, you know, I don't want to claim that God is just responding to the actions of men and he's dependent on the actions of men in order to fulfill a goal of his or anything like that that's not what i'm claiming that's not you know i hope that's not what i i'm coming coming across as claiming i guess because when we you know if we want to probe it from that angle i would say um that even you know jesus spoke about how or i'm sorry paul spoke about how um you know if if the jews uh knew or you know weren't ignorant uh then they wouldn't have crucified the lord of glory right so so the idea is that you know I would affirm, and I think the scripture affirms, that men could do things, you know, could have done things differently, but that God perfectly knew what they would do, and, you know, and so he ordered the events according to what he knew that they would do, not that what they couldn't do or what they could do, and I think that's an important distinction, and, you know, that gets into maybe middle knowledge or whatever, but but that's that's my main point there, and then also just that, um, you know, that, that I... I kind of meet it. Hey, we lost your sound, James. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yep, yep. Yeah. Do you care if we kick it over to uh, Chris? We're already at seven minutes. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to, I guess, can I just ask this question real quick, and then you guys can take it from there? Well, it's it's more so our, our question, oh, but right. you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll, I'll give it In response, I just you want to hear it. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll wait till my time. Sorry. Go ahead. So my question is, um, did God, did the Father want Jesus to be murdered? Absolutely not. Okay, so so the father did not want Jesus to be murdered. The act which would bring about redemption. God wanted to bring about redemption. He knew that the only way that he could bring about redemption was through not the murder of his son, the sacrifice of his son. All right. So you would have to tell me where God murdered his own son, which is what you're saying. 
All right, and I'm saying that God did not murder his own son, that he gave it up as a sacrifice, as a redemptive act of love towards men and not murder against himself. So the so the means of the cross would be murder, right? Not just some, no. any old No, it was a sacrifice. It wasn't murder. Those men did not murder they, Jesus Christ. He gave up his own life. Acts, Acts 4 and Acts 2 said that they murdered him. Yes, but it doesn't it, but Jesus Christ himself says that no one can take the life of him that he gave it up. So, I mean, you've got a conflicting so, statement. So, so it was both, their intent. Both, both statements are true. No yeah. one can take his life. But they murdered him. It was a sacrifice. So I'm looking at it from the perspective of what Jesus said. You're looking at it from the perspective of, of what their intent are, was. So. Are you saying a sacrifice does not entail murder? No. You'd have to show me where the sacrifice in the Old Testament was murder. So when they sacrificed a, the goats, they weren't murdering it? <laughs> Do you murder an animal? Yeah, yeah, you murder an animal. No, it wasn't murder. The definition of murder is... It, it, you have to look at what the definition of murder in the Bible is. But let me... James, you can take it. I, I've taken up a lot, enough to the, of the time. I just want to jump in right there because, you know, I do believe that uh, God desired the death of Jesus in order to bring about redemption, you know, as Isaiah 53 says. Um, but I don't think that that means that God, uh, you know, desired for sinners to... Uh, to to work their sin, I, I don't believe that 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 one uh, that one desire of God in terms of you know the death of Jesus in order to bring about redemption means that therefore uh, the actions which you know are combined you know result in that act uh, result in that event is what God desired. So so I guess does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I hear you. Uh, I'll let me ask this question because you both, you, you both, both of you gentlemen said this that God only has one will. So my question is, if God only has one will, then according to Job forty two two, does that mean that will that one will can never be thwarted? Oh, that I do believe essentially <laughs> that it always happens. So yeah, I do believe that God's will is multifaceted. Like I don't believe it's just a single will that you know comprise is comprised of one stream of, of something or something like that. You know, I do believe that God is interactive. I you know I mean, and I, you've claimed that as well that um, God intervenes, right? In the case of Abimelech, so um, there's no need. To, I don't think there's any need to construct a two will theory or a two will you know doctrine. I affirm that you know anything God plans according to His purpose, no one can stop Him. In that sense, it's irresistible. So that, I mean. But I believe that he allows some of what he uh, works out in, in the midst of mankind to be uh, you know, responsive. Like, you know, in uh, the case of uprooting nations in Jeremiah 18, um, you know, that, that can be something that he responds, he's, he's responsive to, he's, he's flexible. Okay. So okay. I, that, that would be my answer, I guess. It's, it's a little bit more complex than just two wills or, or one will that's, you know, uh, monotonous. Okay, last, last question. Um, this is to uh, Josh because it just came up in the uh, when uh, Dave was asking you a question. Where in Acts four did it say that the men were the determiners of their actions? Uh, well, it doesn't say that they were the determiners of their actions, but it doesn't say that God was the determiners of their actions either. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, you you had stated that the men were the determiners, so I was just wondering yeah. where that was. Well, but, uh, I, I think that, let, see, let, this is this is where I, I, I where I would go to back up that. In verses 23 and 24, it says, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And in verse 24, it says, And when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and, and the sea 
uh, and all those. Well, where was it? Um, but then David, they're quoting David, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? So that's where I'm saying that it was within their own will. And what David prophesied would happen, it, it, it started in their own heart. So. All right, I'll let you guys uh, pick up. James, you want to kick us off and I'll pick up from there? Yeah, sure. So I want to touch on what, um, getting back to what Dave said in his uh, opening statement, um, and also just in what you guys said in your rebuttals. Um, so Dave, I know you kind of brought the idea of, uh, you brought the idea of simple foresight that, you know, look, God looking down the quarters of time. Um, you know, I don't affirm that view, or I mean, I don't claim to, to claim to hold that view, that it's God's um, interactions with men just involve simple foresight. So, um, you know, do, do you, but, you know, touching on foreknowledge, do you believe that, um, that God's foreknowledge was involved in the events of the crucifixion? Uh, yeah, I do not affirm that predestination and foreknowledge are the same thing and used interchangeably in scripture. Uh, but yes, God obviously foreknows everything that he predestines. Uh, that does not mean that predestination is based upon the foreknowledge. I would say the opposite is true. Okay, so so as Acts 2 says, Acts 2.23, it says, you know, according that these events happened according to God's foreknowledge and plan. You, you interpret that to mean that these events happen, and also God foreknew them. I think there's a, the reason plan there is used for a reason. Definite plan, just to be, you know, it's it's definite plan. It's that God's definite plan that what's going to happen. Okay, um, let's jump to something else real quick. Um, if you don't mind, Josh. Um, so you said, you know, decree doesn't mean, I'm speaking to Dave again, decree doesn't mean one thing. Right, it's it's uh, the the word decree is used in a variety of ways in scripture. Um, obviously, and I, I was mainly trying to bring that out because, um, you know, Calvinist in the Westminster Confession of Faith, anyway, it, the Westminster Confession, uh, West, Westminster Confession of Faith, attempts to derive or adopt the term decree out of scripture in order to construct a unilateral decree of whatsoever may come to pass. So, I mean, I, so you know, I want to ask you, I mean. Like, like, why do you think that that's uh, a good thing to do in terms of like building a system, uh, systematic theology, to adopt or derive, pull something out from scripture, and to construct a theology around one term, and then claim that when we look at that term throughout scripture in its various usages, uh, that it doesn't mean what the Westminster Confession of Faith claims in that chapter. Well, two things. I think first, uh, the definition of systematic theology is is it's systematic, right? It's pulling from all of these different. Uh, portions of scripture that speak to this specific thing. So yeah, I have no problem with the Westminster's taking a word that is used in the Bible, clearly defining what they mean by it, and then systematically drawing from all these different scriptures to be able to determine what is actually the systematic whole that's being taught. What I don't think is that the intent of the the Westminster Standards is to say that uh, every time in scripture uh, the word decree is used, it's used in this way. I, I, I would not affirm that or make that argument or think that they were attempting to make it. Right. Okay. So, so you would affirm that, you know, that the Westminster Convention of Faith in, the, in chapter three about the decree, that it's, it's sort of like inspired by the term decree and, and pulling from that, but it's not necessarily trying to build, um, a, you know, an exhaustive scriptural case to say that 
Weber decree is used, it's referring to the unilateral decree of God. Yeah, it, it's certainly not uh, attempting to do that. To be honest with you, I haven't done a, a ton of research on what the specific framers meant when they used the specific word decree. Uh, I wouldn't have an issue if they derived it from Scripture. I wouldn't have an issue if they just used the word in general usage and then defined it. Okay, and then one more question for you, um, and then I'll turn it over to Josh. Um, you, you specifically said something to the effect of, uh, you should use our language about what pleases God or, or what God's pleased by, and and I really find a problem. Uh, I really find that problematic because you're basically asking us to buy into your presupposition, your outside presupposition of what Scripture is saying about what pleases God, and and how how the passage in Isaiah forty six ten uh, that all he does all that he pleases. And can, can you elaborate a little bit? I don't remember specifically saying you should adopt our. Maybe, our maybe, I, can, uh, maybe I can step in because I think I know what uh, Dave was saying. What I, I believe what Dave was saying is that you need to let us define our terms. Right. Not that you have to agree with them. Obviously, that's not the case. We're not demanding you bow down to us, right, and accept our definitions. But at least let us define our definitions, so it would be better interactive. Um, so, okay. Yeah. So, okay, and then um, I guess. In response to that, then can you def can you can you state what you think in Isaiah forty six ten the pleasing of God in, in that case what it was referring to like like what is God being pleased by and, and how does that work? Oh. Is this question for me or for Chris? I'm pulling it up right now. Sure, either. And honestly, after you guys answer, um, just Josh, you can go ahead. Uh, so, so my intent, I think I get where you're getting at with this. My intent in addressing this from your opening. As it says, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, as things not done, saying, my counsel will stand, I shall accomplish my, accomplish my purpose. And you had essentially said, uh, this is based on God's foreknowledge, right? This is a, a statement of God's foreknowledge. And I was just pointing out that there is, there is activity here that God is doing. He is accomplishing his purposes, and he is declaring the end from the beginning. So to say that it's it's just simply only speaking of foreknowledge, I would not uh, agree no. with that. Yeah, yeah, real quick. No, I wasn't claiming that it was all foreknowledge. And my question was more so about uh, the second half of that verse where he says, I will do all that I please. I want to just get your get clarity from you on what does that mean? What What is God saying when he's saying, and I will do all that I please? If, 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 his, if his pleasure there is not uh, synonymous with his pleasure in other places in Scripture. I, w I would affirm that it's speaking about that. I mean, whatever God purposes to, to, to bring about, it's it's going to happen. Um, that's why in the, you know, you have that Hebrew parallel in, in verse 11, I have spoken and I will bring it, that is whatever he's spoken and I'll have purpose and I will do it. So it's that little he Hebrew parallel going on. It's just speaking about his purposes to bring about what he, what he said he'll do. So, and then I guess lastly, cause I just, I mean, this is like for me, one of the main points is, um, Psalm 5, 4 says, for you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. I mean, using that same term. Do you believe that's just that's just a different context, and then so it's talking about pleasure in a different sense, or I mean, because I would, I mean, it it seems like you're claiming from Isaiah four six ten that his pleasure in all things is is referring to an exhaustive decree, and I'm saying there's instances just like in Psalm five four where specifically God is saying he's not pleased with wickedness, with sin, with iniquity, and so how can he be pleased with something and not pleased with something? How can he be pleased to decree something and then not be pleased with it? Well, go ahead. Yeah, so no, neither one of us is saying that God is pleased with specific evil acts. We're saying a few things, though. We're saying that God is often pleased by the results of what and what finally comes to fruition from said evil acts. For example, the crucifixion. Uh, God was obviously pleased with uh, bringing about the salvation of 
all of his elect. Um, and then also, man, um, you know, this is controversial, not, not in this crew uh, necessarily, but dude, God is a just God and it does please God to pour out his justice and his anger and his wrath on sin. So it's not the sin itself that pleases God. It's what comes about because of it. And it's the justice and, and wrath that God um, brings about in it. If it. I hope that answers the question. Josh, you can go ahead. Hey, why don't you um, do this round and I'll do next round? Okay. I didn't know we were doing multiple rounds. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll just let it stand where it stands, I guess, on that. Um, I do still believe that you know, that, that I don't think it's being fully considered the idea of I will do all that I please. I mean, I understand that to mean, according to the Calvinists, that that's referring to he will exhaustively do everything that occurs. So, again, um, Hulk, Hulk, question. When we say that, are you hearing us saying that God is the one that's accomplishing these things that men do? So obviously we draw the distinction between primary and secondary causes, which I'm sure you're you're familiar with and well read on. Yeah. Is that just what, you just yeah. don't accept that as a meaningful distinction or what? No, no, no. I, I'm I'm what I'm hearing you guys saying, and i and I put this in my opening statement, what I'm hearing Calvinist Calvinism is saying in that passage is all that is done is what pleases me. Uh, that, that 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 statement can be rephrased as all that is done is what pleases me, and I don't I don't believe that you can substantiate that, especially going to a passage like Psalm five four, which not everything ple not everything that occurs it pleases God. So, yeah, so. and that this, this is what I was trying to address in my rebuttal, um, which when we talk about these words, we, when we talk about words like please, and then we assume these definitions and these presuppositions and then we load it into the word that's why i said i wouldn't use that word i would use the words of the confession i would use the words that we used in our opening statement uh i do think there's a there is an extent to which everything that happens will bring glory to god and it does please god to be glorified i don't know that i would go so far as to say that every single specific sinful thing in of itself the sin itself pleases God. What, what do you think, Chris? Are you kind of yeah. kind of there? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that because I even said in my opening statement about that. That's why I make the distinction with the two wills. And I think it's necessary because if, if you don't make that distinction, then you, you will have to say, well, yeah, in some sense, you know, uh, stealing pleases God, even though, you know, according to his revealed law, we know that God hates sin. And so that, that's why I think you got to make these distinctions. Okay. Um, so I guess maybe the, the, I mean, how much time do we have left? You got 15 seconds. So, okay. so yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to ask like point of order here for the debate. Are we going to do two more full up 10 to 12 minute things? Is that your intent? Cause uh, I unfortunately need to get out of here in about, about 20 minutes. Cause I got to work super early in the morning. Um, well, if we, if you have 20 minutes, we could go your 10 minutes and then my 10 minutes and then we could, uh, we could. Uh, I, th turn I it thought over. we were only doing one. Ten I, I, oh, do you want to do? You just want to. But do I don't have an issue, Josh, with you taking five or six minutes to ask some yeah. questions. It's, well, why don't we do that, and then we'll turn it over to the audience, and then cut it. Well, off. I, I, I think we may have to even do kind of like closing statements. I think that's what uh, Dave's saying because he had to head out at ten thirty. Oh, I, I thought we. I, were... I'm, I'm good for. I'm good till ten thirty. So. Well, um, okay. Let me do my. I, are we doing closing statements? I would prefer it. Okay. 
So sure. let me, I'll do five or six minutes of questions. We'll do closing statements. Dave, if, if you have to go then at that time, that's that's cool. Chris, if you want to stick around, we could open it up to the audience. If not, I got to wake up too. <laughs> oh, you got to go too. So, yeah. well, I'll stick around. I'm sorry. If anybody I, I, I got to get up no worries. tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so here's some questions that I've got. Um, this, this really is what we're talking about, the two different wills, the two wills of God. So the way that I understand the two wills, the two wills is going to be the revealed will and the secret will. One will says, I don't want men to sin. And then you've got the secret will is men actually do sin. God knew they would. So therefore, God is the cause of sin, which is what you guys are saying is the decree of sin. Do I have that much right? Well, you we don't use the word to establish what you mean by causation. The decree. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we took that position that God decrees all things. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dave, you we would agree with that? We obviously say that that does not mean that God is the cause of sin. Okay. But um, then in, in that same sense, you used these words inter interchangeably. He predestined, he decreed, he ordained, he preordained, he, he caused. So you're now saying that it's not caused, it's not predestined, it's not ordained, it's just he decreed it. Is that right? I would be very surprised if I used the word caused. No, you I didn't. Did, I think, yeah. But. <clears throat> So you, you would not say that uh, predestined is the same as decree? Uh, In the sense, if, we were to call, if, we're, if we're defining, um, you know, decree as a, a, a plan of God, a, uh, you know, preordained will of God. You know, Which those is how you defined predestined, is that right? Those things can be interchangeably, uh, you right. know, stated. Okay, so can God decree something and not cause it? Uh, so we're, or we're now we're talking about primary and secondary causes, right? Yes, absolutely. The reason that we the reason that we avoid the word cause is because this becomes a point of contention. And I would say once again that no, the re because God nothing would come to pass, good or evil, had God not created. The only difference in our position here is that we affirm that God has a decree and that He brings about everything that comes to pass for a purpose. Right. So, again, this is just another one of those examples, I think, of, you know, maybe we have a primary and a secondary cause and you have a primary, a secondary and a tertiary cause. But at the end of the day, it's still an issue for. for no, it's guys. not. It's not the same issue. But here. So uh, I didn't say it's the same issue. I'd say it applies equally in a different way. But you're you've the, the topic of the debate is decreeing sin. So you're saying it's either a primary or secondary cause. God doesn't cause sin. He just decrees it. So, God which is it? Is the decree primary or secondary? So, God does not put sin in the heart of man so that they desire to do it, nor does he compel but them. But does he give them a nature that he designed, he He created, that they are only able to do within that nature? Is that well, a deterministic the, nature? That, the nature is the result of the fall. So, Which God I mean, caused. Yeah. No. Which God okay. So, you God don't take the stance that God caused the fall? Because what it, what it sounds like you're saying is he, he forced Adam to do what he didn't want to do. No, I didn't That's, say forced. He caused. Okay, so, so if, you, if, you, if what you mean by caused is created, then yes, we agree. Okay. Adam fell because he was created, but you have the same problem. That's but God problem. knowing that... Okay, so let me move on from that. This is so kind of along the same lines. I think lines. that's important because you also affirm 
that God created Adam knowing that he would do that. But I also affirm that Adam had a genuine choice to either eat of the tree of life or eat of the tree of knowledge yeah, of good and evil. I, I know. Decision. So, um, let me move on here. Okay, so uh, let me ask this. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, uh, or 8, verses 19 and 20, it says, and, and it shall be if thou uh, do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, and testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations with which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall ye perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. So when we're talking about uh, the will of God, I, I had actually posted about a week ago, I said, uh, the Calvinist secret will says that God wants men to walk after other gods since he allows it to happen. Not necessarily that he caused them to, which is what you guys are saying here tonight. Uh, however, tell me, do you see a double-minded God here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, where God tells them not to walk after other gods? They do walk after other gods. God knew they would, and, and yet he allowed it to happen anyways, which would be the either primary or secondary causes. So this is what we're, what we're talking about right here. How is, how is the two wills uh, not contradictory to, uh, within the Calvinistic worldview? I'd like to understand that from your perspective. Well, I, I think I can explain that, um, and I, I think we have, but maybe clarification. The, I believe the reveal, the reveal law is used to bring about his secret, secret decree. So they aren't in conflict. They are working harmoniously for a purpose. And, and, and that's the whole thing that Dave, I think, was trying to bring about. Is, is but that's what I'm asking. I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm, I'm just, that's what I'm asking is how are they harmonious if they are complete opposites? God doesn't want you to sin. You do that's sin. That's what I'm saying. So God is, wants is you to sin. They are used to bring about God's purpose. And that's I not mean, what I'm asking. I'm not asking, are they well, used to bring it about? I'm asking, on, does God want you to sin? You gotta wait more than five seconds. Let me get this out. God's revealed law is used to bring about his secret decree, i.e., when God said, don't murder, that was the very means of how he would bring justice to the men who killed his son, yet it was the very act in how God would redeem the world. And so they are they are harmonious together. You see the confliction because you think you see you hear God saying murder and then don't murder. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's conflicting that's, to me. That's the very thing what we're saying no to. Do you, uh, I can't ask questions. No, you go ahead. Uh, so it sounds to me, I'll, I'll try to phrase it in the form of an answer. It sounds to me like you're saying that Judas, Pontius Pilate, and Herod thought that they were sacrificing. Christ. Because you say, no, 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 it wasn't murder, it was sacrifice. But obviously, that was not the intent of any of those men's heart. The intent of those men's heart was evil. And Acts 4 says, it, it doesn't say God looked down the corridors of time and knew what they would do and based his decree on that. It says, God gathered them together. He gathered specific men together yeah. so that what he predestined would take place. Well, it doesn't say predestined. It doesn't say he gathered them. I believe it does. No, it says they gathered together. Yeah, it does say they gathered together. And it also says, which I quoted earlier from uh, what, what David prophesied, that it was uh, of the intent of their own heart. Um, but let me ask you this, and then I'll wrap it up. Um, so here, here's one final question in regard to the cross, okay? Now, we, we understand whether you want to call it murder, whether you want to call it, uh, whether you want to call it a sacrifice. Um, my question is this. What what is what is God actually redeeming on the cross when it comes to sin? If God decrees sin, so it seems like God is working against His own will that He's actually decreeing sin to come to pass, but yet He's sending His Son to die for the very thing that He decreed to happen. 
How do you guys reconcile that? Well, I reconcile it by seeing that God has an intention in glorifying the Lamb. Um, first and foremost, the, the, God, the cross is about God. You made a statement that was very troubling to me that the cross wasn't the greatest wicked event. It was the greatest act of love. I see that as very problematic because if you can't see both, you're not seeing the cross rightly. And so I would see it as, um, you know, where you, where you see it as two conflicting issues. Like I said, I see them as harmonious and working together to bring about, to redeem the lamb. Okay. I, I don't know if uh, Dave wants to respond to that either. No, I mean, I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally on board with that. Um, I think there's a lot to discuss, a lot to unpack in a, you suggesting that, that Jesus wasn't, uh, wasn't murdered by Jesus and Pontius Pilate uh, and Herod. Uh, I think there's a lot to unpack in, in your understanding that they could have done otherwise. There's a tons of, ton of questions I'd like to ask on that. But yeah, I mean, I agree with what Chris said, man. If you don't see, you know, justice and wrath uh, at the cross as well as love and mercy, you're getting, you're getting half the view, man. You know, and uh, that, that'd be what I would say. Cool. Yeah. All right, well, um, let's turn it over to you guys. You can have it. Do you want to have the last word or do you want to have the first? On closing statements, um, we can we can go first. Yeah, let's go first. That's fine. What are we doing? Three, four, or five minutes each. What do you want? You want to do five minutes? Yeah, I don't. I don't even need that long. Yeah, okay. I can do three minutes, man. I, I'm I'm cool. sorry. I'm a little on time. Man. No, you're good. Hey, um, kick it off whenever you're ready. Go as long as or as short as you want. Do you want me to go first, Chris? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay. So, you know, man, we talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, we didn't talk about Genesis chapter 50. We didn't really talk about Acts chapter 4. Um, not much, at least. So I'm, I'm reading this right now. Josh, I'll read it out of the KJV just for you, man. Um, but this is Acts chapter 4. It says, For the truth against the holy child Jesus, whom they had anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Um, so what we have there uh, is that we have that they were gathered together. Who were they gathered together by? They were gathered together by he whose counsel had determined what would be done. I don't know where you guys are getting this. They gathered themselves together. Uh, I'm not sure what's up with that. Um, but no, what we see there is, is we don't just see foreknowledge. We don't just see looking down the portals of time to see what would happen. We have two very explicit statements, one gathered together and two to do what was predestined. Genesis chapter 50, you guys' position, you, you, unless, uh, you take some sort of mental knowledge position, which is a whole nother debate, you have to take the position that God gave Joseph these prophetic abilities, which we agree uh, is, is brought about by the Holy Spirit before any of this happened, before he was sold into slavery, but he didn't intend for him to be sold into slavery, but he looked down the corridors of time and knew that he would, but the reason he was was because of the prophet. Like, it just, it, it doesn't allow the text to flow naturally. Um, so that would be what I would say with that. Uh, and, and just closing, you know, that that's pretty much what I've got to say, man. Uh, in closing, we can talk 
all day about how would you define this specific word cause? How would it, you know, I disagree with your discussion of primary and secondary causes. I just don't allow that to exist. Well, okay, that's fine. We try to be very meticulous and methodical in our presentation of that. We try to define our terms accurately. Uh, we try to define them consistently. Um, but man, we could quabble all night over a, a little definition of a word, which I get is important. But man, we got to go to the text and we got to see what scripture actually says about this. And if you're taking the position that it wasn't that God was not happy with Jesus's crucifixion, with Jesus's execution, if that didn't please God and what he brought about, I don't know what to tell you, man. Um, so that's it. That's all I've got. You guys are good to go. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll say a few words. Um, yeah, I, I share similar thoughts with that. Um, you know, my, my, my troubles were a lot of the texts that we did brought up were just kind of dismissed and a philosophical uh, lens was placed over that. Well, if that's true, then God is evil, you know, was seemingly the, um, you know, you know, the rebuttal. <laughs> but that's not actually dealing with the text because we could we could do a lot of things like that, too, with, um, you know, something on another tech, uh, another topic. You know, it's like someone arguing for the Trinity It's like, well, if that's true, then polytheism is true. It's like, well, and a lot of it wasn't dictated on a, a logical, I, on my, my perspective, I know you guys will di disagree, a logical connection to why it necessitates that being true. Um, I, I already brought up my kind of qualms with, um, you know, the cross wasn't the greatest wicked evil. I mean, Acts 2 seems to differ that they committed this evil act. They murdered Jesus, the innocent son of God who came in the flesh, and men crucified him. That is evil. That is wicked. Yes, we we see the act of God's love because we see Him being Him Him being poured out for our sins, and we 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 the benefit benefits of that. But make no mistake about it. It all of God's attributes meet at the cross: His wrath, His His grace, His mercy, His justice, His holiness, His patience. It's all there. And if you're you're not seeing it, you're not seeing it pro properly. In my perspective, I, I know there's a big deal about. Murder not being, you know, sacrifice, and you know you can sacrifice something, but it's not murder. I mean, I don't know what they were doing in the Old Testament with the goats. Then, uh, if they were just kind of spilling spilling the blood out, but it, the <laughs> it wasn't an intentional act of of death they were doing to this, you know, this lamb. Um, yeah, um, you know, I, I believe Acts four is clear. I believe, I believe Genesis fifty is clear. God predestined that event to happen. All of their decisions, not only the cross, not only God didn't just predestine a murder to happen as if, if Jesus would have fell and smashed his head on a rock, that would have been good enough. No, he predestined the actual death on the cross, Pontius Pilate, Herod, and the Jews. All those decisions were not, you know, just some kind of, you know, looking in the foreknowledge and then, oh, well, I guess, you know, I, because it almost makes it seem like God has to submit to what he sees men do. Um, that, that brings in views of, uh, you know, omniscience, you know, how God knows things, uh, which, you know, maybe is a conversation for another time, which, you know, you know maybe it'll happen. But I, I reject I, I reject that position that, you know, God, 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 God predestines what he, he knows will happen. That's ultimately to say He's just kind of like, all right, I, I guess that's what we got to do, just because that's what he knows will happen. Um, 
you know, unless you believe God can change your future, which that's another conversation as well. So I'll submit to that and uh, let, let the other gentlemen give their closing statements. James, I'll, uh, do you want the last word or do you, you want to get us going? I'll go first just because it's my first debate and it's like, I'm, you know, in the front of my mind, I don't want to lose everything that they said. So yeah, you got it. Okay with you. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, Acts 428, I mean, let's just go back there. I mean, I, I feel like I did provide a good analysis of that. My main point in, I think, in this discussion is, look, what the Calvinists are claiming and ultimately bringing in from from the, their external reference, the Westminster Confession of Faith, their understanding of what, you know, that sort of decree is, you know, I, I just believe it's not necessitated by the text. And that's that's my whole point here tonight, was to just to, to analyze the common uh, scriptures used by Calvinists to prove their point. And I just, I don't believe, I mean, you might be saying that, you know, like, well, look, are you claiming that um, the scriptures aren't clear enough for that when you can understand? Honestly, like, I was the one who quoted, you know, Romans 11.33, because I do believe we have limitations in, in, in understanding all the stuff perfectly. But at the same time, you know, I do feel that, like, listening to what you guys are saying, I don't feel that I was actually represented. I mean, and I know that that's, that's just sort of like limitation of the time constraints that we were under and all that. You know, I don't believe, like, I just feel like... Even even within our own limitations, it's hard to muster up uh, the the wherewithal to you know where to even represent what your opponent is saying properly. And I, I just don't believe that you know my views anyway were were at least addressed you know regardless of being represented properly. So um, I believe you know like you did address a lot of a lot of things I said, and I appreciate that. And a lot of what you said I think is just consistent with non-Calvinism. Um, but you know I mean we could go into specifics, but. You know, I just want to want to quote real quick um, Jacob Arminius on on Acts four twenty eight and two twenty three, um, where he says it is evident then that there was no other action of God in this case that he other than that he delivered his own son into their hands and permitted them to do their pleasure in reference to him. Yet he determined the limit to which he pleased that they should go, regulating and governing their wickedness in such a manner, yet very simply that they should inflict on him that which God had willed that his own son should suffer and nothing more. And I just think that's that's you know the heart of that understanding of the passages and uh, you know referring to the crucifixion and God's plan and foreknowledge, you know I believe that that sort of matches you know what I my takeaway from those passages, um, and you know so the, the idea of of uh, you know primary secondary causes and all that stuff. I mean I just think we're getting into the weeds if we, we want to go into that in terms of this topic, but. I just, again, really feel that uh, the idea of a Calvinistic compatibilist decree, you know, a unilateral whatsoever may come to pass decree, I just don't feel like it was substantiated from the text. I believe that I've provided a good enough, uh, you know, understanding of those, the the sort of quintessential passages that Calvin, Calvinists use in order to maintain that those readings aren't necessary. And, you know, ultimately, I just want to, I want to look at a passage, you know, I'm not trying to inter- introduce anything new, but I want to quote scripture, I mean, because we're talking about scripture, right? We're going to scripture and um, Psalm 58, one through two. Um, I, I believe that this passage is addressing, you know, man. And so I don't want to sort of reproject that onto God, but I do believe that this speaks to his character where he says, do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No, in your heart, you devise injustice and your hands meet out violence on the earth. And so, you know, I just think passages like that, I think we can learn about the justifiable nature, justifiable nature in which God decrees things uh, by how he admonishes his creatures for their decretive injustice and another passage similar to that, um, you know, Psalm, sorry, Psalm uh, 9420, which reads, 
Can a corrupt throne be your ally, one devising wrongdoing by decree or mischief by decree? Uh, the same term for wrongdoing used in Habakkuk 1.13. So, I mean, I just think, are we to understand that God disapproves of men devising wrongdoing by decree, though he himself directly devises the wrongdoing of men by decree? Holding these two ideas in concert, to me, just seems problematic. I mean, I think we, we're called to, I mean, God uses analogies uh, referring to men, uh, you know, in their experience. And I think it just seems totally outside of the scope of, of what God expects of us in order to sort of maintain this idea that God, you know, decrees, I mean, regardless of if it's in, within, from within his nature or from some sort of like conceptualization of what he would decree, uh, I just don't think that that's, that's, uh, that's coming from the heart of the tenor of scripture. And so uh, that would be all I have. Cool. Hey, appreciate it. Um, so let me sum it up this way, guys. For my closing statement, I want you to—I just want you—I want to get across about three points. Okay, uh, one: the objective of tonight's debate was to answer the question: Does God decree sin? And uh, on the Calvinist uh, standpoint, they are—they were under the obligation to actually prove that God does, in fact, decree sin. Now, they took the position that He does. And uh, when we really broke it down, we, we talked about a number of different things. We talked about the wills of God, then we talked about the causation of, of God when it comes to sin. And uh, we, when we really nailed it down, we, we tried to get to the meat of what that will is. Is it two wills? How are those two wills not contradictory or conflicting against each other? Do they work against each other? Uh, then, then we talked about uh, the nature of the cause. Does God actually cause sin? I don't think that I don't think that the question was actually answered. I don't think in the in the sense of does God decree sin? Yes, He does. Well, how did He decree it? Well, because men sin. That's the answer that we got essentially. Well, nothing happens according to uh, against God's will. No one can thwart the, the the will of God, and and so that's the rationale. It's it's just a it's just a, a way of uh, kind of. Um, reconciling two things. The event happened, therefore God allowed it to happen, therefore God decreed it to happen, and therefore God decreed, and so sin happens and God decrees it, but yet he doesn't cause it. Uh, but we'll use words interchangeably like predestined, ordained, decree, pre predetermined, and, and then say, well, it's not actually causing. Well, it's either a first or second, secondary cause, uh, primary or secondary cause, uh, but it, God definitely doesn't cause sin. So I, I think that they don't even know the answer. Does God decree sin? Well, he doesn't cause it, but it happens. But uh, I guess if you look at it that way, he didn't decree it, but he did. So to me, it's kind of conflicting. But uh, So here's the one thing that I want to clear up. Um, I, I was accused that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross wasn't murder. The question, the way it was framed to me, was did God murder his son? That was the question. And my answer was, no, God did not murder his son. God sacrificed his son for the redemption of mankind. Men murdered Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Yes, that was murder in the mind of men. In the mind of God, it was redemption, a redemptive sacrifice to appease his wrath. So when it comes to the gospel, guys, let me present it this way as clearly as I possibly can. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice for the sin of the entire world. That includes every man, woman, and child. And uh, his death was able to save anyone who uh, believes on him. And it was able to save anyone who doesn't believe on him. Uh, but for you in the audience, for those of you who are watching tonight, I'm telling you this. When the wrath of God was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, on that cross, it was poured out for you personally. And I can tell you that because Jesus Christ tells you that. He died for you. And when it comes to the wrath of God, 
That wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ so he doesn't have to pour it out on you. It was an act of love, an act of redemptive love, that God did not cause you to sin because God did not decree you to sin. So I'm telling you from a traditional perspective that God does not cause, he doesn't determine, he doesn't decree, he doesn't preordain, he doesn't predestine, he has nothing to do with your sin or any evil in your life. So if you're looking for if, if you're looking for a reason for evil and sin to happen in your life, you can look at three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three things that are going to cause sin in this world. All right? And at the end of the day, there's a price to be paid for that, and Jesus Christ paid it for you. The only thing that you have to do is call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and apply that sacrifice to your own heart for your sin. And it's eternal. It's everlasting. It's You're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And uh, that's what it boils down to, guys. That's, uh, that's the message that I've got for you. Thanks again for coming to this debate uh, and doing this tag team. I think it was a kind of a different style for us. I really, I'm, I'm glad we got to do it, Chris. Thanks for accepting the invitation, Dave, as well, and James. Good job on your first debate, man. Thanks. Yeah, I go by Jimmy, by the way. But, yeah, I appreciate oh, it. I know I, my Twitter handle is James Gray. But, um, yeah, man, it was uh, nice talking to you guys. Uh, maybe we can set up another sort of debate like this um i appreciate it you know be blessed in the lord um and let's just affirm that you know ultimately we're brothers in christ and you know this is ultimately just a difference of opinion really i mean it's it's a difference of opinion on how we approach the text and how we read the text and ultimately we affirm scriptural authority you know so cool hey chris dave i'll give you the last word since you guys got to go and then i'll turn over to my closing scene for the audience and go from there yeah man uh I echo a lot of what Jimmy said, um, that I'm thankful for, you know, for a platform to, that people are willing to have this conversation outside of one, well, since Twitter updated its characters, so I was going to say 140 characters, but um, thankful where, you know, we can have this conversation where it's personal, it's, you know, outside of Twitter and, you know, we can actually see each other's face and hear each other's voices. Yeah. I think that's huge in conversations like this. And so, um, I, I'm appreciative of, uh, you know, the dialogue that happened. I appreciate, you know, the cordiality of you both and, um, just the kindness you guys were. So, um, appreciate it, man. Dave, you got yeah. anything, buddy? Absolutely, man. Uh, again, yeah, echo what, what, uh, Jimmy and, and Chris said and what I know you're going to say as well, Josh, just, uh, love you guys as brothers, you know, um, it's good to be able to get to do this. It's important to be able to get to do this. Uh, and I think a, a lot was a lot was presented, and I think it was edifying. So appreciate the invite once again, and uh, I'm sure you'll have to put up with me again at some point. I agree, man. Hey, it was a good time. Hey, for those of you who are still on viewing, um, I'm going to open it up to questions. I know you, uh, Chris, and I, I don't know if Jimmy has to go, but Chris and Dave, if if you guys have to go, you can go ahead and jump off, unless you want to stick around for questions. But um, we'll, we'll just see if anybody has any. And then I'll go to my closing scene and, and go from there. So I haven't looked at the comments, but I don't know if there's actually any questions in here. If you've got a question, go ahead and type it in. We'll do our best to answer it. So thanks again, guys, for joining. Yeah, for sure. Did you see any? I don't know if you were going through there, Jim. I didn't know you go by Jimmy either. So. Yeah, it's my, my Twitter handle is James Gray. But um, yeah, I just figure if we're going to be buds, you know, might as well bring that up. Um. Yeah, I don't see any questions in here, and, you know, I mean, 
it's kind of freezing where I'm at. So yeah. if there's, yeah. um, I'm fine with taking off, but I will cool. be to answer some questions if there are any. Cool. Hey, I'm going to go to closing scene and, uh, <laughs> thanks again, Jimmy. We'll catch up with you soon, man. Yep. See ya. All right. All right. Well, Hey, thanks again, guys. It was a good time. Uh, that was uh, another episode with the, uh, a live stream debate, Does God Decrease In? Uh, hopefully you found it edifying, no matter what side of the camp that you're on. Obviously, uh, Jimmy was, uh, he's Arminian, so there's there's some things that he would have in common with Calvinism, uh, more than, than what he and I uh, may have in common, but I think that he did a good job representing his side of the debate uh, for his first debate, and uh, Chris and Dave did as well. That's what I love about doing these live streams man we can challenge each other and uh push each other and still be brothers in the lord and still vehemently disagree with what uh our systematics or our our interpretation or what we what we believe about the bible and uh, we can still be brothers in christ so hopefully that was good for you guys hey um stay tuned Uh, i will be um giving out a date on when i'm going to start that series with doug stoffer on dispensationalism and uh, we'll get that out to you soon. I'll be doing a book review from uh, Alan. I can't remember his last name. He sent me a book uh, that's called From Death to Life, and he wants me to review that, so I'll do a review on that as well. He's Calvinist, so there's a lot of things I disagree with, and I will present that to you. Um, God bless you all. Thanks for tuning in. Please share, like, and subscribe, and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks.